house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. There'll be pictures of you in every newspaper from here to Timbuktu. Let's stay calm. No, you can't stay calm. Anytime I've tried anything normal, it's just been a disaster. From the creators of Four Weddings and a Funeral comes an unlikely romance. Anna's a goddess. You know what happens to mortals who get involved with the gods. Between two very different people. The fame thing isn't really real, you know. I live in Notting Hill, you live in... Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will rule to protect the wetlands that provide a home for the noble pelican while also attending weeknight skin flicks at the local porno theater. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my horse and hound enthusiast, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Joe Reed, you are horse and hound's favorite actress. <laughs> what if horse and hound did like a year-end like four-year consideration like honestly horse and hound's a real magazine right yes i believe okay I believe. so why didn't they start doing like fakey fake movie coverage as a gag around this movie like they should have done like a year-end awards at Do least you in remember the lady gaga it happened at some point during the pandemic i believe because it was yes. post Joanne, I think. The Lady Gaga on a horse on a mountainside photo, where she's <laughs> got the don't. flowing fabric. <laughs> I don't, but that sounds fantastic. I will one thousand percent put it on the Tumblr okay. for everybody. Some okay. listeners know what I'm talking about, but definitely because of that, I think Gaga is probably Horse and Hound's current favorite actress. <laughs> sure, <laughs> she's the actress of the of the new millennium for them. Yes, all right. Um, we are here, dear listeners, to close out our May miniseries, our fifth of five episodes on movies that grace the cover of Entertainment Weekly's seasonal movie preview issues. We did uh, a, a spring movie preview with Panic Room. We moved into the summer with The Da Vinci Code. We did our epic fall episode on Ransom. And then last week, we did our holiday movie preview on the Pelican Brief. Now, that's all four seasons, and yet we had one more week in May, and so we left it up to you, the our dear Garys, our dear listeners, to choose what would be our fifth episode. You, in your infinite wisdom, decided on Notting Hill, and so we will be talking about that and the 1999 summer movie preview in this episode, but we want to give a little bit of love to our listeners' choice runners-up, Chris uh, start the in memoriam reel. Have um, uh, who could be singing like "Smile" or something like that, like uh, Sarah McLaughlin or, uh, uh, or a Jennifer, Jennifer Hudson. Hudson. <laughs> uh, yes, perfect. Gaga right. hasn't done it yet, has she? Well, she did that um, 
Sound of Music thing, which wasn't a in memoriam, but it was sort it of. It was a, a Sound of Music anniversary, though, right? It was. Yes, we I'm don't talk sure. enough about her doing Sound of Music because that gave her, I think, some legit cred with an yes. audience that is now on board with her. That she like, doesn't there were get final holdouts. They got yeah. she got them with that. She doesn't get the the Stars Born nomination. I think without that, I think that was a crucial. Uh, way station but anyway yes so three runners up in our listeners choice this one became a two-horse race pretty quickly uh second place was very decidedly mary riley from so we were going to be doing a julia roberts movie no matter what and we expected a mary riley runaway we kind of did because we make such a big deal of it on the podcast. We have our little running gag. And yet, Notting Hill was by far the most sort of populist choice of these four. This Mary Riley, for as much as we love it, was a uh, overlooked and, and nobody saw this movie in 1990. It was, it was 96, right? We, we talked about it during the 96 fall preview. Um, and then our other two movies were... Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Connery in the Russia House. I can't believe that the listeners did not want to <laughs> unleash our dueling Sean Connery impersonations on the world again. And you know what I did remember from our what? Sean Connery episode with Finding Forrester? Uh huh. I did a Sean Connery does Buster Rhymes moment. Yes, you did. Yeah, for like kind of a while. Like it was kind of an extended put your Walked hands around my, my house doing that again the other day. <laughs> and then speaking of um horrifying accents, the uh, the Devil's Own, which would have been back-to-back Alan Pakula movies because mm-hmm. uh we did the Pelican Brief last week. Uh The Devil's Own, which was Alan Pakula's final movie starring Harrison Ford and a Irish with a question mark, Brad Pitt. And we would have had to have gotten Bobby on for that episode too if we did we would the have. Devil's Own because it's either, you know, uh whatever you can link meet Joe Black with uh uh yes. uh the Pelican Brief or it's Brad Pitt doing terrible accents. Yes. Either way, uh it totally works. Um yeah, we would have had to keep Bobby for like a back to back record, do it uh screen draft style and have just a five hour recording session and uh, but anyway, I voted for The Devil's Own. Not a whole lot of other people did, and that's fine. We are very happy to be talking about Notting Hill. But uh, Chris, g- give me your thoughts on the three movies that could have been, which we could definitely do down the line. Like, there is no keeping us sure, from sure, doing sure, these sure, other sure. movies. Yeah. I mean, uh, ultimately, I'm a little happy that it turned out the way that it did because, A, we this whole miniseries has been becoming about, you know the way that the EW movie previews have like functioned and like digging into those too. So it's like, we didn't mm-hmm. buy those issues or did you buy them? Uh, no, I think we were, wait, we I were think I have to see the results. I thought I'm pretty sure I have the Russia house one. Not probably because somewhere. it was harder to find as we yeah. were preparing these things and the other ones we knew we could get a hold of. Yes. But this is a really interesting 
issue to dig through. And Notting Hill is a fun movie, too. I think it probably won because, you know, if you're looking at a poll for two seconds, you know, that's the one that has the name draw. So, you know, people might have voted for it that way. It's that sort of law of large numbers thing, too. It's just like in a big enough group, the most like popular thing is going to win, like the most generally popular thing is going to win. And Notting Hill is incredibly broadly popular. Right, right. And it's also 1999. Which, you know, as a yeah. movie year gets talked about so much, but I think there's so many movies in this issue that don't. But it's also a certain yes. type of 99 culture that we're going to definitely be getting into that I'm so excited to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, this this summer movie preview is a good reminder. You're right that there's a lot of these movies that are like, wow, this really didn't come to anything. And this is a movie we this is a year we talk about quite a bit um and as far as a summer movie season is concerned it's so interesting that you read through this and uh <laughs> it's like at the time they were so like how many movies did you read in this preview where star wars still gets mentioned when discussing yeah. other movies oh, it was the- the shadow of Star Wars loomed over everything. This was Phantom Menace was just about to premiere. So, like, this was fever pitch, and EW was all over that movie. So The cover, because it's a Notting Hill cover, it just has a mentioned, oh, yeah, Star Wars. Because you know in a few weeks they're going to do the whole Star Wars blowout cover issue, right. etc. You know. Well, and they had already done, I think, during casting and stuff like that. Like, it had already been a cover movie, I'm fairly certain. Hayden Christensen. Well, no, Hayden Christensen. No, this wasn't would Hayden yet. The It List. Why but I, I remember Ewan McGregor had a cover uh, at some point, which was, I don't think, the, the movie's about to be released cover, which was just like him as like young Obi Wan Kenobi with the little Padawan braid or whatever and the lightsaber. I'm sure, Jake Lloyd had a cover. Well, or that, like, even just that shot of, like, Jake Lloyd with the the shadow of Darth Vader and stuff like that. We should look up, um, maybe while you're doing your plot description uh, in an hour's time, I will, uh, I will <laughs> check out what the, uh, what the Star Wars EW covers were. But so, right, so the cover of this Entertainment Weekly, this was April 30th, 1999 for Notting Hill. Uh, big old smiling Julia Roberts on the cover. Uh, Hugh Grant in profile, kissing her cheek, and uh, I, I, I imagine you can sort of uh, picture this publicity still in your head. The floating heads uh, on top of the issue, if you recall the old uh, seasonal preview standard, where there are five uh, photos along the top, it is Mike Myers as Dr. Evil in Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, Katie Holmes, wait, what's the Katie Holmes? Uh, teaching Go? Mrs. Tingle teaching slash Mrs. killing Tingle. Mrs. Tingle, we will absolutely get into it. Right, yes. Um, Tom Cruise, who is there representing... Um, wait, why can't I think of that one now? What is Tom Cruise representing? Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, see, because it's a, just a fully publicity shot. It is not at all anything from the movie. It's fully Because it didn't movie. exist. Because, right. talk about mystery box movies... The uh, we can save it a little bit for later, but the eyes wide shut blurb mentions yeah. that there's just ninety. Seconds they don't know of anything of it, right? Yes, yeah. they had no idea. They were grasping at straws as to what the plot would be, and even though were... it's an adaptation, um, 
Well, Was and it? the the photo that they use for Eyes Wide Shut is fully one that we don't even see now, but it's just them kissing. But it's really right. tight on their faces. Well, there was that teaser, which was just like the two of them making out. That was the only thing that anybody had seen of it for ever and ever and ever. And yes. All right. So anyway, the other two photos are both in character in costume. Michelle Pfeiffer from A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I definitely want to talk about because that is one of those movies that was like a big deal. It got the big splashy two-pager in this issue. And... It fizzled. Searchlight movie. Pretty, pretty entirely. I never actually saw it because this summer of 99 was like big on other, you know, movies that, that were, you know, more summer movie priorities for me. And I never saw it because it just sort of went away. And I'm kind of super curious about it. And I kind of think we should do it at some point on this podcast. It'd be fun. I think it would be fun. The, the casting the cast in that one is kind of amazing. We'll get into it. And then, of course, the final one is Will Smith in costume from Wild Wild West, one of the big critical bombs of that season, although I'm pretty sure it still made money. Uh, probably not as much money as, at this point, Will Smith. The Will Smith is the king of July 4th legend had really taken hold. It's from- the entire like thrust of the write-up yeah. on the movie too it yeah. like their you know, buzz thing whatever is will smith on july 4th what more do we have to say <laughs> yeah basically yes so uh all in all 133 new releases for the summer of 1999 the other thing that, that we'll definitely get into is just the sheer volume of movies that are interesting from even just the summer movie season. Obviously, 1999 is an incredibly celebrated year in movies, and you'll see it just in when we give you the rundown of all of the movies that are in this issue. It's really, really something special that, like, a lot of these small movies that were sort of relegated to the and also section end up being really, really interesting slash important slash, you know, even if they're not the big movies of 1999, they're worth remembering. And a lot of things that have nostalgia. Yes. Or, like, have built up cult followings. Uh, the movie that isn't, this is a theme across all of our episodes, the movie that isn't present, the Best Picture nominee, The Sixth Sense. Right, which was a late August or mid-August release. Uh, August for sure. August only gets a few pages? Yes. The big two movies are Mystery Men and former episode The Muse. Yeah, Former listener's choice, The Muse. Yeah, The Muse. I mean, you know, underrated masterpiece, The Muse. Um... (laughs) There were, yes, yeah, so there was there was certain ways in which this summer season was still in kind of flux. Fight Club is included in this uh in this lineup as one of the and also movies, and it's noted that the it's included in the August section, but its release date is indicated as move moving to July. Well actually it would eventually land in October. So it ultimately is not a summer movie in nineteen ninety nine, mm-hmm. but a fall movie. But let me look up the Sixth Sense release date, because that was definitely August, because I definitely remember watching that not long before August sixth. Okay, so yeah, early August. And that was Fight Club's also um in the and also section of that yeah. August, too, when it says right. move to July. So it gets this tiny blurb, so you can kind of tell 
that there was probably an editorial choice to keep it pretty brief for that movie that may or may not it, it was probably already in the ether that that movie was moving um, well i it remember makes no sense that fight club with brad pitt would be relegated so much well but i remember very clearly that this issue was the first time i had ever heard of this movie at all and so i saw there's the shot the photo that they include is brad pitt in the dingy ass uh bathtub with his filthy tank top that he's sort of like you know rinsing out or whatever and that's all that plus that write-up which that write-up was pretty vague was all i knew about this movie fight club and yet i was instantly just fascinated by like what is this movie what's going on and then it would be another if it so this was in april so it was another like almost six months until the movie actually gets released in the states and so by that there was just six months of me just ramping up expectation for this mm-hmm. movie i was very excited for it um uh, Fight Club Six Sense. Yes. Okay. So let's move through sort of the front of the book stuff. The big news and notes story was Puff Daddy was facing assault charges for beating up a record executive for uh, issues that he had with the video he did with Nas for Hate Me Now, where they were on crosses. They were, uh, you know, big up MTV on... controversy. Big MTV controversy because apparently Puff Daddy beat this record executive up because he wouldn't take those images out. Now, sir, you filmed this stuff. Like, there was no ambiguity as you were, you know, shirtless on a on a cross. Uh, One singing does not along simply your... appear upon a cross. <laughs> right. So you imagine there was a good bit of buyer's remorse, and this was coming from, you know, he didn't want to be religiously offensive or whatever, and you wonder where... At what point down the line did he realize this would maybe be bad for him, would be bad for his image, and was... And it's funny to think about it now, because ultimately, the thing you remember from Puff Daddy's career at this point is the assault, not the video. Nobody remembers the controversy over the video. Nobody cared about the controversy over the video, really. I remember it premiering on maybe TRL? Yeah, that's probably most things. I did. distinctly remember Carson Daly being like, "Oh, after the video <laughs> premiered." Uh, Carson Daly, the the difference between how in his element he felt when talking about pop stars versus how he how out of his element he felt when talking to either rock or hip hop stars was very or alternative funny. stars. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, we talked about. Wait, we didn't talk about it on here. It was, but it, I it was talking about uh, Girls Five Eva did the in their first episode of the second season. They did a insane callback to uh, Liam Gallagher on TRL being zonked <laughs> out of his mind and being totally obstinate to Carson Daly's questions. And I was like, what an absolute like only Girls Five Eva could pull a reference that specific and obscure. And Paul Appel was so funny doing it, but. I went back and I watched that clip and I was like, oh, right. Like, not only is Liam Gallagher being like a complete, you know, being himself, being himself, but like himself on like, he clearly has no respect for this show, no respect for TRL, no respect for Carson Daly, no respect for anything. And so he's being intentionally uh, a a problem. And but Carson Daly also has absolutely no idea how to handle him because he has no 
like that's just not his wheelhouse. It's outside of the right. teen. He was so good at the teen pop stuff. Yeah. Pop stars who are through a publicity machine exactly. that like, you know, and he was so good at narrative. that. Right. He was so good at that part of it. And then he was so kind of inept at the at the rest of it. So yeah, I can imagine he, him sort of <laughs> premiering that Hate Me Now video and being like, huh, yeah, so anyway, Christina Aguilera is at number two this week. Um, <laughs> Entirely the fault of the person who booked Liam Gallagher. Of course. Total request Of course. Live. Absolutely. Anyway, um, the interesting sidebar of that uh, of that article about the Puff Daddy controversy was like, here are some other people who have gotten in trouble with the law lately in the music industry. And it's like, Suge Knight, Old Dirty Bastard, uh, Marilyn Manson. And it's just like, oh, right. Like, at least one of those is still in, you know, monstrous legal trouble these days. Well, people, people are still cozying up to Marilyn Manson in a way that makes me still very now? angry upset when I see it. Like, present day, like, 2022? That's insane. Yeah, like, Madonna. Oh, God. Honestly, like, check a calendar. Like, for God's sake, you like you do not need to be currying favor with Marilyn Manson in this day and age. Um, any thoughts on Jim Mullen's hot sheet from this uh, week? I was, at first I said, huh, these are kind of not offensive jokes. And then, very suddenly, they become offensive. Where where uh, specify this for our listeners? You know the the first uh, jokes are you know picking fun at Wayne Gretzky. They're all uh, bad jokes. That's loving donuts. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio. A lot in this issue about Leonardo DiCaprio falling off a boat filming the beach. Filming the beach. Yes. Yeah. I I definitely want to talk about that because that production was like famously troubled in a lot of different ways. And then he jumps into Pamela Anderson getting her breast implants taken right. out and said, well, what did she do? Give them to Britney Spears? Not har, a joke, har, even. Har. Not, Not even no. a joke. That's the thing. He's very bad at actually making jokes. So, yeah. <sighs> Alas. All right. Also on that page, though... Uh, I will forgive you for not even paying attention to Jim Mullen's hot sheet because... Speaking of misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, VH1's Divas Live 1999 had just happened. And so there was... uh, They were doing a lot of post-mortem on this. Now, if you recall, this this was the second Divas Live. This was not the original that had Aretha and Celine and Mariah and Shania Twain and Gloria Estefan. This was their second go-round where already the format was sort of fraying because... They couldn't do just, you know, another, like, five women again. For whatever reason, they couldn't get everybody that they had wanted. Who had they had, they had mentioned specifically in this article that they had reached out to Diana uh, Ross Diana Ross. And Lauren Hill, who both turned them down, and Donna Summer, who uh, was uh, previously booked. So they did Tina Turner, obviously, Whitney Houston, obviously, Cher, and then they were like, I mean, I guess we can do Elton John because he's gay. <laughs> like, it well, was one but of those. Well, they're not like, in the official lineup. They're like, there was. This is when, because they couldn't book the people they wanted to just have like a core set of headliners, they yeah. have like special guest appearance by Elton John. Right. But 
those were the four biggest names because they also had like Mary J. Blige was there, Shaka Khan was there, Faith Hill, Leanne Rimes, but they were all very clearly a step down in sort of diva stature, and it felt like they needed to like bring in the sort of star power of Elton John to shore up the fact that it's like, oh, Faith Hill, Leon Rhymes. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, but even just reading through this, I remember, I remember how underwhelming in a lot of ways Divas Live 1999 was because it just didn't have the whole thing about the first Divas Live was it was all five of them on the stage at the same time. And you didn't get that very clearly in Divas Live 1999. They talked about that big I'm Every Woman number where it ended up being Whitney on stage with Shaka Khan and Mary J. Blige and Leanne Rimes and, and Faith Hill. Uh, they were like, what happened to everybody else? They were like, well, Tina's Tina was done for the night. Um, Cher was like, I did my bit. Yeah, Cher felt that she had concluded her set, and uh, Elton John didn't feel like singing a chorus of I'm Every Woman. And so all three of those uh, them were gone. And so at the end, it was like Whitney and her pips, essentially, which is like probably just as well with Whitney, but for... Very iconic Whitney coat, by the way. Oh, yes. This was the gray sort of uh, uh, layered fur coat thing. Um yeah, very iconic. But um, as a viewer, and so, okay, I th- our ages at this for this issue, I think, is going to be very significant. I was nearing the end of my freshman year in college for this. Um, so I have very, very clear memories of, like, all of this stuff. And I remember feeling disappointed. You were at what stage of your... Uh, I turned 12 this Homosexual time. development. Okay. Which is a crucial stage for the No, I'm at a decent stage of my homosexual development. Not like necessarily a sexual awareness, but we had only recently. This is when you're gathering. This is when I live on five channels. Right. Yeah. VH1 was very important in 1999. People don't fully really understand that at this point. Like, this was heavy into the behind the music era. There was a lot going on in VH1. I watched a ton of VH1 at this point. So, like, I was very well versed. But yeah, age 12, you're you're sort of you're in the hunter gatherer uh stage of your development where you're just like you're just like taking in all of this pop culture and filtering it through you know your your sensibilities that you're mm-hmm. sort of forming at that point. So so where were you on VH1 Divas Live 1999? I remember this one being disappointing, but I mean the first Divas had Celine Dion so that was yeah. the one that I watched multiple times. Yes, yes. It was amazing. It really was amazing to watch all of them. I will say, VH1 Divas Live 1999 did have Cher and Tina Turner performing together, which was kind of all I needed. So, like... Right, right. While like, was, they, they yeah. should be the, the, like, spotlight. However, at this point in my development, I wasn't fully into, like, Cher, like... I uh-huh. kind of had to be an adult to understand the significance of believe, etc. Sure, sure. You know, like, my entry into Cher as a child was uh, Moonstruck. Right. So, by this point, 99, I'm in college. I already love Mermaids from watching it as a kid. I also had a fairly decent understanding of who Cher was. If she didn't already had her behind the music by then... um. It was right around this time. So, right, like, 
right? And, and it, see, I, like, the stuff I liked about Cher's behind the music was all of the stuff in the 70s and the 80s. And, yes. like, uh, I, I wasn't I, on board as a dumb kid with Believe Cher, and I just yeah. wanted her to be doing If I Could Turn Back Time. Right, of course, of course. Um, And then Tina Turner, I remembered enough from the 80s and what's love got to do with it i remember that one specifically mm-hmm. reminds me of like when my older cousins would come visit from out of town and they would play their like tapes of all this stuff and like i remember what's love got to do with it being uh one of those big songs from that era and that rock she, right and then she had her come back around the movie what's love got to do with it she had uh i don't want to fight and then she also by this point had golden eye which was only a couple years ago so like i was really into teen at this point and so by I like love that GoldenEye is like a cult gay song now. The gays have yeah. really metastasized around GoldenEye being one of the great Bond songs, if not the greatest. It's it's up there. In the past it's few years. It's amazing. The lyrics are insane. Yes, insane. They are. Fully insane. You'll yeah. never know how I watched you from the shadows as a child. That's yeah. me watching Divas Live 99. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing about Divas Live 99 was... Famously, Tina Turner and Elton John did not get along on set, that there was some sort of friction there, and one of them walked off the set during rehearsals, and of course- They were Elton... supposed to tour, the tour got canceled. Exactly, exactly. So like, there was a lot going on around that. So, yes. All right, let's go through the rest of the front of this book. Um, they had a sidebar comparing- the newly released Go, one of my favorite movies of 1999, uh, with Pulp Fiction. I remember Go, the Go Pulp Fiction comparisons were really sort of hot and heavy at the time. And I guess I get it now, but with 20 plus years of hindsight, I'm like, it's, it feels less acute because like it was just an entire, just decades of movies being influenced by Pulp Fiction in one way or another. Go, Mm -hmm. to me, just now feels like Go, and feels very much of its era. Obviously, the rave culture stuff was, like, very of its moment. A lot of those stars in that movie were very of that moment. I guess it got the comparisons to Pulp Fiction because it did the three separate interconnected stories that sort of would brush up against each other. Yeah, Go is maybe closer to Pulp Fiction than a lot of the movies that Pulp Fiction inspired because those stories do really branch off in their own ways, especially that middle one in Go. Yeah. Yes. Well, and there's also things like the Timothy Oliphant, uh, Katie Holmes scene at the diner uh, Mm -hmm. the next morning where they're talking about the family circus, which I guess does feel very like... Uh, Pulp Fiction inspired, Tarantino inspired, where it's like, but like light, right? Like Tarant, that was Go was sort of criticized as being Tarantino light, and I get a scene like that makes sense in that way, where it's like, oh, two characters talking about pop culture ephemera that doesn't really have any bearing on the plot uh, in a diner setting, which like Pulp Fiction had that diner, uh, you know, scene sequence. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What did what what was your take on this sidebar? Uh, my take was because I had entered this being telling myself I was 12 years old at this time, not right. yet 12 years old even, and um I should not have been seeing the motion picture go in the theaters <laughs> and yet I had a cool dad 
who was trying to foster my interests. Sure. And yet, like, such a should good not movie. have taken me to see the motion picture go. Katie Holmes is really, like, sneakily very good in a way that she did not get credit for at the time in that movie. Sarah Polly is excellent. There are so many good performances in that movie. Fickner's great. Jane Krakowski's great. Um, I don't know. I love that movie. I should watch that movie again. It's been a little bit. It's been a, uh, probably decades for me. I don't know if I've seen it since oh, really? maybe 2002. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, in the sort of... Uh, not news and notes, in the monitor section, there was another thing about, obviously, we mentioned Leonardo DiCaprio filming the beach in Thailand at the time. There was a lot of... First of all, there was a lot of business before this movie even started shooting because it was originally going to star Ewan McGregor and then Danny Boyle uh, opted for Leonardo DiCaprio and that kind of soured that professional relationship with him and Ewan McGregor, at least for a long time. Um... They were shooting a scene out on the water. They were out on a boat, and the uh, weather sort of capsized it. What? What? What exactly did it? Just sort of like it caused a bunch of problems, and there was uh, some danger uh, involved for uh, DiCaprio and Tilda Swinton was also filming this scene. So, if you're going to be capsized on a boat, please be capsized with Tilda Swinton. Well, at some point, Tilda's going to be able to call upon like Poseidon or something, right? Like she's going to sort of be able to summon some kind of uh, deep sea uh, goddess energy to She dove her head under the surface of the water and called upon the whales and they came and (laughs) put the boat right side up. Exactly, exactly. All right, all right. Getting into the summer movie preview. As we mentioned, Star Wars looms over everything. This was the... Uh, this was the Phantom Menace. This was the hugely anticipated. Like, if you were not, if you were not culturally conscious at the time, if you are somehow disgustingly too young to remember this, um, people were camped outside. This was the days before Fandango, kids. Um, camped outside movie theaters for weeks to get tickets to see the Phantom Menace. When we I say, because I feel like, you know, this is, Phantom Menace is something that's been unpacked ad nauseum in a lot of different, you know, usually like straight bro, like yeah. formats and such. So like our audience may not quite remember it. And I know we've never talked about it. When Joe says weeks, Gary's, he means weeks. 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 Camped out a lot of them in costume. There was a lot of sort of... um snickering from the mainstream media about this about you know the dorks lining up for star wars tickets i can't believe you know these people have no lives and you know all this sort of stuff and evidently no jobs too well but there were stories of people like groups of people taking shifts right right right, right. where like you would be a group of like six people and you would like swap out and people had like really like worked this stuff out obviously yes there were also people who just like straight up like did not have jobs and were you know were hanging out in line for weeks on end dressed like boba fett or whatever did Um, you have a theater that had people camping out at least my closest theater where i saw the movie did not have people camping out so our big movie theater where I grew up, uh, the Regal Quaker Crossing, was you couldn't drive past it 
without like that being your destination. Right now, it's in the middle of this giant, vast plaza with like a Target and a, um, you know, a Marshalls and a, a Coles and a Dick Sporting Goods and all this sort of stuff. But I think at the time, it was just the movie theater and maybe the Dick Sporting Goods in the middle of this vast development that hadn't really developed yet. And so, and it was set off enough in the in this sort of suburban area where. It was off of the main road, so you wouldn't drive past it. So I never remember seeing line lineups of people there. Um, because by the time I saw The Phantom Menace, I remember very clearly it was uh, during the week. We must have had like... Oh, because it was we were in college, so we were home. Like we were done with this with our our freshman year of college in like the first week of May or whatever. So by the time Phantom Menace comes out, I'm on my summer break. I remember my friend and I went and saw it the Wednesday after it opened. So it opened. That's about the time I would have seen it with my dad. So it opened. It, they bumped up the release date by like two days to like give it a little bit of a head start before that weekend. So we're clear of opening weekend. I remember going and being like, let's just show up. Let's see how sold out it is. Cause again, you couldn't find out how sold out things were until you got there. I guess you could call ahead, but like we were, you know, 18 years old. We weren't calling ahead. So the other thing too about people camping out for weeks before after they had their tickets was this is before the advent of reserved seating. Right. Like reserved seating was something that very she she theaters were just beginning to. Oh, I remember, like, there wasn't reserved seating even through, I remember all those, like, Lord of the Rings years and stuff like this. Like, we were, we weren't camped out for days, but you had to show up, like, several hours early unless you wanted to sit in the very front row. And I remember watching, I believe it was the Two Towers from, like, the very front row being like, God damn it. Anyway, um, so by the time the Wednesday after opening weekend comes along, we were sort of anticipating, we're like, we'll have to stand in line, we'll go early in the day so we have all day, and if we can get a ticket for, like, an evening show, and then we'll just sort of hang out there, and whatever. And so we show up at, like, 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday, and there's nobody there. And it was super, like, fairly easy to get tickets. We got tickets to the first available show, and we were there. And that was sort of my first experience of this aggressive opening weekend culture, where it was just Mm -hmm. like, oh, right, like, everybody needed to see it by Friday or Saturday. And so by the time Wednesday came along, it was just like, oh, this is great. And so that kind of uh, kindled a a lifelong love of waiting a few days to see the big movie (laughs) for me. The other thing about how we had essentially waited a week to see it was word set in very quickly that it was a disappointment too. So I think, Oh, see, I remember that casual people. Like it was maybe the second week when like casual viewers had like set, had like would start to settle in on that narrative. But my memory of that was that we talked ourselves into liking it for a very long time. That, 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 that sort of hung on, for weeks and months and it wasn't till well into the fall and even like maybe even later that we were like was that good i know there were initially you know obviously the reviews were you know questioning and whatever like that but i think in my because you could be in more of a pop culture bubble back then Mm -hmm. um i remember my friends and i being very much like that was good no that's that's (laughs) you know that's this Darth Maul, really cool. Like, that kind of thing. Um, I remember my dad and I going to get dinner afterwards and just kind of looking at each other and being like, yeah, no. <laughs> I feel like having an adult, I feel like having an adult there probably um, 
helped skew that for you a little bit. Whereas like being just Probably, among teenagers, especially like, because I fashioned myself uh, a very young adult. Sure. Yes. Yes. Phantom Menace I only experienced with my fellow teens. So um, we definitely um, were we're definitely uh, hyping each other up about it. And I wasn't in like these like super Star Wars nerd circles. We were like fairly like mainstreamed about things. We were but like mainstreamed teens were also like super into Star Wars. But we weren't like you know, I didn't read the novels, let's say. I didn't right. read, you know what I mean? Like I didn't uh I didn't have costumes. I didn't even have like a ton of Star Wars toys as a kid. I had some cuz everybody did. But you know what I mean? So like um, I had a fairly mainstreamed experience of that. I had a Star Wars childhood, but not in the way that everybody had. Like, the the people who say they have Star Wars childhoods had Star Wars childhoods. Like, you know, I had the VHS brick sure. before, you know, the special sure. editions came out, etc. Right. But I, I remember back, back a little then... bit to something you mentioned. Yes. To just, like, kind of frame... Star Wars in a way, because you said if you weren't ingrained in the culture, you were still excited for Star Wars. And it's because it was everywhere. Truly yeah. the like yeah. multi-level marketing job of this movie made it so inescapable. The the thing my memory always goes back to is the Pepsi campaign for this movie. Mm-hmm. How every type of Pepsi product had a different face of a different character on the cans and such. Wasn't there also a gold can? Like, people were trying to find a gold can and there was a prize. That sounds plausible. That was in the age of um, scavenger hunt games at fast food places. Um, Obviously, the McDonald's Monopoly game was, like, very much uh, uh, a big thing. If not at that era, like, well, the McDonald's Monopoly game had a few different lives. And I remember uh, it was pretty far back. Anyway, I did want to call out this one um, quote that Natalie Portman gives at the end of the write-up for Phantom Menace and the Fall Preview issue, which actually ended up coming true in a way that even at the time, I wonder if I would have maybe like raised a skeptical eyebrow about where she, they were talking about whether the cast members on this new movie are going to end up being saddled with these roles forever. And in the way that like Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill, you know, were in the original Is it going to define their career? Right, exactly. And so in this one, it's Natalie and Ewan McGregor and um, Liam Neeson. And then of course, Jake Lloyd. And I think that's the sort of, that's the the difference. And, And that's the point that Natalie makes. She said, they asked her whether she was worried about typecasting. And at this point, she was only 17. But she had been in The Professional and Beautiful Girls. And uh, she's in Heat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she was in sort of several movies by this point. Uh, She'd already been in the Mike Nichols wheelhouse in theater. She was Anne yes. Frank on Broadway. Right, right. So she said about typecasting, I never worried about that. Uh, all of us, all of us have starred in other films, whereas the other Star Wars, most of them hadn't really done any leading roles. So I think we're going to have less of a problem. And ultimately, that came true in a way that is very fortunate. I think for all of them, you don't really. It's not see... true of the Anakin's. It's not true of Jake Lloyd and Hayden Christensen. That, but I think the point she makes is the crucial one there. Right. Uh, the Anakin's hadn't been in anything by then, but like Natalie Portman, Ewan McGregor, Liam Neeson were all able to retain their Samuel Jackson too. I 
yes, were able to retain their identity as actors. And now you see Natalie Portman and like most people, if like name five Natalie Portman roles, I'm not going to put Amidal on them. I think maybe people who are more Star Wars pilled might, but like even that, like she's just like she, her, she has a career and a, a public uh, persona that just does not include that. Liam Neeson, the first thing you're going to think of is like the Taken movies, I would imagine. Ewan McGregor, uh, well, Ewan McGregor's about to <laughs> be Obi-Wan Kenobi again. So um, maybe that's uh, that's a different conversation. But anyway, I thought that was an interesting quote from Natalie. But like Ewan McGregor immediately goes from this movie and makes Moulin Rouge. Right, right. Yes, and like, and you know, a billion other things. Like I, I, I think in general she ends up being proven pretty correctly there. And I imagine mm-hmm. what, looking at that quote back then, 17-year-old Natalie Portman, a lot of people were like, yeah, sure. Like, talk to... Like, imagine I imagine Carrie Fisher's reaction to that was like, watch out, you know? But uh, ultimately, uh, Natalie is proven correct. All right. I'm sort of going to scan through. I don't want to, like, we don't... We're not, a, we're not a Star Wars podcast. We're going to move no. right along. Notting yes. Hill leads it. We've been talking all miniseries about the font situation. Oh, yeah, get into this. I do think somebody knows what they're doing, and it's like, it's kind of a cool choice, but it was very jarring to 20-plus years later open up this issue and see the Knott's Berry Farm-ass fonts. <laughs> well, it's so like here's... Notting Hill is a ride at Holiday World. It's like very 70s Adventureland font. All of the movies that get the splash pages, all of the movies that get the two-page spreads that lead... Basically, every month gets two movies that lead off their the month's coverage, and they get the more in-depth stories. And all of those get fonts that are tailored to the movie, right? So Notting Hill gets you right this very, like... the mildew and the like, wood mold on these fonts. It looks like, yes, it looks like a welcome to Notting Hill sign. There's a heart uh, dotting the I and nodding... Um, Phantom Menace has this very sort of like old school adventure serial uh, font to it. As you scroll down even more, Tarzan, uh, the Disney Tarzan has this sort of, you know, uh, almost like a tiger fur uh, uh, font look to it. Austin Powers has the, you know, the hippie flower dotting the eye and that. That's very, you yeah, know. Austin Powers is like the Giga Coaster, the Latin. Haunted, obviously, Haunted House, Wild yeah. Wild West, the Wooden Coaster. Yes, yes. So I thought that was kind of cool, actually. For as much as, you know, we talked in the Panic Room episode about the haphazardness of the fonts and how it was sort of driving us crazy. This at least feels like there is creative purpose and and they're having fun with those and i summer event and occasion yes exactly all right so um we can't go through every single one of these but like let's scroll through and like anything you want that jumps out at you obviously as i said i would love to do an episode on midsummer night's dream that cast is kind of fantastic when like christian bale is your seventh you know lead cast member in this like that's pretty cool that is a shakespeare uh play that i am familiar with only like because it gets referenced in other things i've never actually read it or seen it performed so interesting i'd like to i'd like to watch that kevin klein michelle pfeiffer callista flockhart who was like very hot at the time because ali mcbeal was like fresh and new 
Um, she Rupert has Everett. a wild quote at the end of this. I'm just going to read it verbatim. Go for it. Uh, in discussing Shakespeare, she says, I love his tragedies. I think they're very funny. Like Romeo and Juliet. It could be hilarious if you played it a certain way. All that miscommunication, very funny. Hilarious. Classically it's hilarious. hilarious if you imagine it coming out of her dry delivery. I, yes, I have always had a soft spot for Callista Flockhart, so, um, but yes, that is very funny. Uh, Rupert Everett's in that movie, Stanley Tucci, Christian Bale, as I said, uh, Dominic West, Anna Friel, several years before uh, Pushing Daisies. Yeah, put a pin in that. I'd like to talk, I'd like to cover that movie. Ooh, uh, we'll loop back to him in Summer Night's Dream at some point. Yeah. Uh, the Mummy kind of buried, again, another movie, a mm-hmm. new internet fave, like, People treat that movie like it's a cult movie, but that was actually a really big movie. But we've mentioned movies where Star Wars looms large. Like, Star Wars is text for this mummy, right? Yeah. Because they're so very clear of the financial risk of opening around the window of the mummy. Um and I kind of remember that, too, when it opened. Because it opened, I think, maybe two weeks before Star Wars did. Yeah. And it felt very much like, get the screens in, get the money in before it's gone. They even mention they have to lease out their visual effects work to Industrial Light and Magic. Right. Which, uh, in the... Uh, obviously, that's George Lucas's right. outlet. Yeah, they also talk about how they had abandoned their original July 4th uh, plan. So The Mummy felt like a sort of a nomadic movie, right? Like a blockbuster looking for a place to happen. And um, ultimately, in that summer, it does get, I mean, as many things did, uh, overshadowed by Star Wars. It has, as you mentioned, endured in a way that, like, good for, I guess, good for The Mummy. Good for It's Steven never Summers been more popular movie. than it is now, and it was a yeah. popular movie. Right. Uh, Tea with Mussolini, a movie that we have covered on this podcast, gets a nice write-up in the summer movie preview. I was endlessly uh, delighted by that. Obviously, this is Believe-era share, so like that's making it more, um, more popular. I liked the quote from Joan Plowright about share, about the expectation that, uh, that, you know... People were very curious as to how Cher would get along with all these like old English ladies. And <laughs> Joan Plowright says, everyone asks us how we got along with her. The fact is there was a definite mutual admiration society, which I love to hear. Um, it what? sounds like a nicer quote than I'm sure it sounded coming out of Joan Plowright's mouth. Plowright. <laughs> um, yes, very much. Yes, they did make a mention of the fact that like Cher did not... Uh, uh, participate in the tea uh, you know afternoon tea that they had which means canonically Cher is not one of the dames from Tea with the Dames unfortunately I hate to break this to everybody unfortunately um, I want to talk about the Tarzan write up because there was a lot of this was the uh, Disney animated Tarzan there was of course a lot of talk about how there would not be songs sung by characters it would only be sort of um, what is it non-diegetic right? Phil Collins yes right Phil Collins with a bunch of non-diegetic songs. But they also then started talking about the decisions made on how to animate it. They talked about how he would move in the jungle. And and um, Glenn Keane talked about having the idea to have it look like he's sort of surfing the trees. Um, and uh, the, the question of Tarzan's physique. 
They said, this is coming from the article, the filmmakers also pushed to give their hero anatomically convincing musculature, but less WWF, more Olympic swimmer. Quote, we didn't want an Arnold Schwarzenegger body. The idea was this guy's been imitating how apes move his whole life, so only some of him is overdeveloped, like his calves. This feels like a lot of attention to an animated (laughs) physique. Like, I just feel like they're asking us to really sort of, like, you know, mentally ogle this guy. They want us to fuck Tarzan. I mean, yes, and I guess in some I mean, degree... Like, that's Tarzan lore. I, I yeah. kind of get it, but that, sure. is, that is basically the thrust, no pun intended, of this oh my write-up. <laughs> sure, yes. All right. Um, Austin Powers basically and Goldmember. Basically throw a wig on Michael Phelps, and that's what they wanted it to be. I will say, we're going to talk later when we talk about Notting Hill, about movies that successfully counter-programmed uh, Star Wars. I think Notting Hill was like Notting Hill opening directly opposite Star Wars and being able to make decent money was the success story. I will say in terms of pop culture, Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me mm-hmm. did a really good job of drafting off of the Star Wars popularity. They did a lot. I remember they did TV ads at the time that were like spoofing Star Wars. They really sort of like kind of hitched their wagon to the Star Wars thing to the point where now I think of summer 1999 and the first thing I think of is Phantom Menace, but the second thing I think of is Austin Powers and the Spy Who Shagged Me. Like that was, um, that was the, the second biggest, the wildest, movie of that the most hyped movie-going crowd that I experienced this summer was one thousand percent the Spy Who Shagged Me. Yeah, that was, and people sort of don't always remember that the very first Austin Powers was not a hit until it came onto video, mm-hmm. and so. I mean, it wasn't, like, a bomb, but, like, it did not really become a thing until it reached video and people started watching it. It was very much sort of a uh, an organic kind of grassroots thing. And Because you picked the second movie at Blockbuster, it was everybody's second movie. Right. Uh, Spy Who Shagged Me was a huge hit. And was a huge, like, Mini-Me was everywhere. Uh, unfortunately, Fat Bastard was everywhere. Right, like, yeah, like, EW has a whole, like, write-up on, like, you know who's gonna be the hot character this summer is Mr. Bigglesworth. And, um, it was just huge. It was just absolutely huge. And while now I can look back on it and be like, it's probably not the strongest of the three, but, like, at the time, I was like, yes, Spy Who Shagged Me, my favorite. It was, I was so into that movie. I thought it was so funny. Um, did you see South Park? As, as a 12-year-old, South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, were they, was, that, was that something you were allowed to see with your cool dad? My dad also took me to South Park, Bigger, Longer, un, and Uncut. It, uh, I remember, we saw it on vacation, I remember. So it's like, it wasn't a crowd that I would be able to really gauge the crowd, but it was maybe half of the audience left in uh-huh. the first 20 minutes of the movie. Wow. So they did not know what they were getting into. I imagine if you had seen South Park, you would know what you were getting into with this I movie. Mean, even so, so, I mean, the thing about South Park is South Park now, or at least in the past five years that I've maybe caught 30 seconds of it, is as much as the movie was. But the leap from the show to the movie was a pretty big leap in terms of how profane it was. I guess so. I guess so. The fact that they could actually like say the F word in a movie and, and... And say it a lot. They have a whole opening number. Well, not the opening number, but the second number is Uncle Fucker. Right. Which, uh, 
it's, South Park, the movie is a riff on very traditional musical storytelling, and it but it opens with this incredibly wholesome or you know campily wholesome number, and then launches into Uncle Fucker, and then it doesn't stop from there. My push pull with South Park, and generally as as the years have gone on, I of course was the teenager and I watched South Park a lot and I still have fond memories of certain things, but like that show and Trey and Matt specifically have like really curdled as they went along and sort of became entrenched in their sort of um, contrarian libertarian uh, stances and whatever. And, but even with that movie, I remember being like, even at the time, I was like, oh, that opening number is so well done. Like, the Mark Shamanness of it all. And and then you read the write-up to this, and they're so incredibly fixated on sticking a thumb in the eye of the MPAA in terms of, you know, the ratings board. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of, like, the movie itself is about that, about Terrence and Philip are being censored and yada, 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 and... and South Park was one of those shows that got wrapped up in, we'll talk about the fact that, like, this issue of EW comes out the week of Columbine. So, like, yeah. we were about to get into the Columbine uh, pop culture conversation. And South Park was definitely wrapped up in that, even though, you know, it seems absurd to think of at the time. But, you know, it was set in Colorado and yada yada. Um, and so I think people were really grasping to to, you know blame anything in the culture for this horrific thing that had happened. And so South Park became very um, much preoccupied and they were already obviously because this came out before, or this uh, movie was made before Columbine preoccupied with this idea of we're being censored. We're being, the MPAA is being unreasonable, which to Mm -hmm. me feels like a very late nineties, early aughts concern. People don't really talk about, the MPAA being corrupt or being, you know, their heads right. up their ass or anymore. Like that just feels like less and less of a concern. Funded by the studios, etc. Well, they also get a mention of their previous pre-South Park movie, Orgasmo, which right. still not even the diehard uh, South Park fan could give a shit about. Right. Um, I also wondered, though, because you are all you are right up about all of that, and it is a little bit of an eye roll to read this write up. But it, while I do think it's genuine that they're trying to stick a thumb in the eye of the MPAA, yeah. I thought they were. It also felt like a bit of a smokescreen for the fact that this movie is also sticking a thumb in the eye of their audience too, because it wasn't cool to be a musical and this is a very earnest musical. And there's nothing in this mention about the fact that it's a musical. Yeah. That was the aspect of that movie that really snuck up on people. And that was a slow burn. I think this idea that there were walkouts when I saw it, that, 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 Oh, so you feel like it was walkouts from hardcore fans who were like, what is this musical faggotry? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, That's I interesting. Bros leaving. Pissed That's off. interesting. Oh wow, I, I I was not thinking about it from that angle. That's so funny. Um, but yeah, that was a definite slow burn. Was this appreciation of bigger, longer, and uncut as you know one of the great movie musicals? And now you'll see if you'll have a list of like you know movie musicals. One of the uh, avant garde choices will almost always be the South Park. Right. Movie. It felt like there was a moment where it was the subversive cool pick and now i think it's kind of mainstreamed as accepting it as a musical agreed 
Um, all right. Scrolling through here, I still have never seen the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. I really should see it. It seems like something I would very much enjoy. I don't think I've seen it since the theater. I don't remember much other than Pierce Brosnan is just giving his James Bond performance and Rene Russo shows her boobs. Yeah. Uh, Also, uh, The General's Daughter, which I never saw. It has a publicity photo of John Travolta fighting crime in bare feet, which is uh, a choice. Also, it's like, John, you can charge for that. Don't just post feet on Maine. (laughs) Travolta fully posting feet on Maine in the EW Summer Movie Preview. All I knew about The General's Daughter was it was a Nelson DeMille movie. And as I've mentioned before, I worked at the public library in high school. I I kept the job into my like first semester of college until I realized that like, fuck this, I don't want to have this job anymore. So um, I, I ended that. Um, but Nelson DeMille was a hugely popular uh, novelist and had like one of those authors that like every book cover is like the same cover, except the color is slightly different. Like one of those things like really yes. branded the aesthetic of the book jackets. And they were all these very sort of like Tom Clancy esque. Now, you know how when Tom Clancy sort of like veered into essentially like uh video games in on the page kind of territory where and sort of like sure, world domination sure, sure, sure. nelson demille was still doing these sort of like intrigue and you know what if there's corruption in the inside the halls of the military industrial complex like that kind of a thing um hugely hugely popular what else let's see let's scroll Big into daddy i also saw on that same vacation the haunting was the big bomb of the summer. Wild Wild West was a critical bomb. I don't think bomb. it was a financial bomb, was it? I thought that movie made money, but it is a massive critical bomb. Let me... I Definitely a critical bomb, but I thought it was also a... Uh, uh, a financial bomb. Give me half a second. One of the many iconic times that... Or, I should say, one of the many times that Catherine Zeta-Jones iconically plays a lesbian. Oh, right! And that was a character who, in the original, I imagine, was uh, was a man. And they sort of... I don't believe so. I think... Well, it's Shirley Jackson, who was, I do believe, bisexual. I think it's more coded in the original I that see. it's a lesbian. All right, let's see. Box. So it might be more explicit in the novel. Ultimately grossed $91 million in North America. So yeah, not a disaster. It's a for, uh, for a horror movie, even an expensive one, which yeah. you watch that movie and it looks like it's twice as expensive as it even is, but it's an expensive-ass movie. But that, that's hit money in 1999. Nominated for five Razzie Awards, including Worst Picture, Worst Director, Jan DeBont, Worst Actress, Catherine Zeta-Jones, where she shared with uh, Entrapment. She nominated for two. Worst. Okay, are they? Worst screenplay, and then uh, homophobia wreaks its head. Worst screen couple, Lily Taylor and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Jerks. They're not actually a couple in that movie. There's some flirtation, but I'm pretty sure Catherine Zeta-Jones mentions having a girlfriend outside of this haunted house. Well, the Razzies decided for their purposes they were going to be... I'm positive it's my first experience with Owen Wilson, who gets beheaded in this movie by a swinging wooden head thing. I was already familiar with Owen Wilson because Armageddon was the year before, and that was the first time I'd ever seen him in. And, like, Armageddon is full of these, like, big 
burly sort of like either like big like uh, uh, Michael Dark, uh, Michael Clark Duncan types, like these sort of like hulking people, or these like grizzled faces, like Will Patton or whatever, or um, like Buscemi and that kind of thing. And then like set apart from that is like flowing blonde hair, Owen Wilson, young and cool and whatever. And in this movie, where we're supposed to find Ben Affleck to be like the epitome of like tank top hot, I'm like blondie over there <laughs> like give me that guy <laughs> i remember very clearly being well, super into owen wilson and again. oh absolutely yes We've established this yes 100 uh, see i don't remember owen wilson even to this day in armageddon probably because there are two stars of armageddon the first star of armageddon is the band aerosmith the second <laughs> is ben affleck's giant gloopy tears <laughs> also that i thought you were gonna say like the animal cracker and, um, I don't know, Billy Bob or something like that. This is secretly an episode about me going to the movies with my family. But <laughs> my family has something we call the Armageddon cry. Because that <laughs> scene where Ben Affleck is screaming, I love you! You know, uh, she, my aunt uh, was sobbing into a <laughs> tissue and inhaled her tissue. And I believe maybe choked on it. One of the other people sobbing. What a way to stranger. go! But my dad and sister, when they saw as good as it gets, they were making fun of. <laughs> later, not while they were there, they right. made fun of this woman who was sobbing so hard at as good as it gets that she shoved her glove in her mouth. <laughs> I don't know how you do. Listen, that. listen. We cope with things in in different ways. Um. All right, we got to get moving through this. All right, okay, deep blue yeah. sea. They call out Thomas Jane as having Matthew McConaughey potential as being like somebody who could go from like no name recognition to becoming a star from this. Didn't happen. Um, partly because nobody walks out of Deep Blue Sea remembering anything except for the big surprising thing that happens. And since it's been 23 years, I think we can probably call it out. Um, sure. but uh, Samuel Jackson getting like surprise chomped by that shark is the only thing anybody remembers from that movie. <laughs> it's so. It's such a good moment. I will stick up for Deep Blue Sea, if only for that thing. Um, also, Runaway Bride is next, uh, which doesn't have a single photo associated no. to it. Runaway Bride we'll talk about more when we talk about uh, Notting Hill, because obviously this was the summer of Julia. Um, but the one quote that Julia Roberts says about why she and Richard Gere had not worked together again since Pretty Woman, it had been uh, at this point nine years, she said, Richard and I, dare I say, do not share the same taste in material. <laughs> <laughs> shade rattle insert rupaul's drag race shade rattle um we the 90s about- for richard Gere is a lot of bad movies yeah yeah it is um american pie would not open until oh no it was open in july i remember late july that- right yeah i remember seeing that movie with my sophomore year roommates I would not have known them, and they were all, none of them lived in Buffalo, so I would not have seen that movie with them over the summer. I guess I didn't see American Pie until September. It would have still been in theaters, because it was a big hit. Um, but I guess I didn't see it right away. That was a movie that I remember the first time I saw that trailer, because you don't really, you don't know too many people from the trailer. I guess I knew Thomas Ian Nicholas, because he was, um, uh, he was what was that movie where he was the baseball pitcher who like he injured his arm and his arm became like amazing um and then i knew natasha had just been in election like election is opening and i would not have seen election by this point natasha leone i would have seen because i was very into slums of beverly hills um but anyway (laughs) hell yeah 
Um, but American Pie, there was this thing, and they were very sort of like, you know, the Red Band trailer had the scene of the pie, like, you know, on his junk. Whereas, like, in the regular trailer, it was just like this, like, you know, what is the pie? What are they going to do with the pie? But I remember that being one of those trailers um, that kind of uh, uh, raised an eyebrow. Oh, I could not believe that they had a full-on, like, regular write-up for Trick, which to me was a really small movie back then. Uh-huh. Like, I don't remember. Trick is, of course, one of those gay rom-coms that I love that Chris hates. And, no, I um, think I like Trick. I remember liking Trick. Trick has, um... You just don't like this genre as much as I do. I don't like this genre, but Trick is one of the ones that I do like. Uh, Miss Coco Peru. uh, Coco Peru is in that, that's right. Gets a a mention in this write-up. Coco Peru has a fantastic scene. She's so mean (laughs) in that movie. Um, The movie stars Christian Campbell, who was Nev Campbell's uh brother it was a you know this gay love story that they this write-up is interesting this episode is just gonna run long whatever like all our episodes in the series are running long we're good, um, we're good. but they talked about how the original movie was just about these two guys who meet each other at a go-go bar and um are looking to find a place to fuck essentially in the city which like so to me i'm like relatable um but they talked about how like the with the sort of studio process even among they were at fine line um or no they fine line didn't buy it until sundance well whatever in the production process they were like we can't just have a movie about you trying to fuck somewhere in the city we need to make it more of like a story and they built it up and ultimately i think trick is a a really good and interesting movie but like i also feel like it would have been fully valid to just have a movie about that premise because i feel like that feels real to me i mean ultimately that is what that movie is trying to find a place even to just make out in new york city is actually really challenging because nobody has cars so like trying to negotiate a place to whether you're like well we're either going to this is why people end up fucking in bars like honestly like i don't know it's a whole thing well but i think in trick they actually do go to each other's homes they do they at least go to one of those homes and it's it brings up the whole like roommate situation. They yes. go to find a friend who might have a place that they can go screw around, but then there's a problem there. It's yeah. it's it's a cute movie. Yes, let's trick, say that. Trick what Trick is good at is telling you about how that can be romantic. That is true. That is one of the yes. Uh, recommended. Go see that movie. Um the Blair Witch Project is this summer, of course, famously. One of the, th- the one of the movies, I feel like people, when people talk about why 1999 is one of the great movie years, I think you could distill that down to, like, part of it is the breadth of it, right? Part of it is just there's so many interesting movies. But I think 99 is not mythologized the way it is, um, if not for, I think, Blair five Witch. central movies. Blair Witch Project, The Matrix... Honestly, American Beauty. People don't really want to like talk about it that way, but like honestly, American Beauty. Um, talented Mr. Ripley, I think, and Election. I think those are the movies that make '99 mm. this like mythologized thing, where it was, you know, those were the things that like these really, uh, you know, movies that came kind of out of nowhere. Even The Matrix. Even The Matrix was not supposed to be the big blockbuster movie of that year. It opened in April, right? So these, you know... As evidenced by this issue, Lisa Schwartzbaum... Well, we'll get into that. C-minus. But the the Blair Witch Project write-up, I want to mention a couple things. One of which was this... EW seems very skeptical 
that the Sundance buzz is going to translate to mainstream buzz. They were, of course, uh, canonically wrong about that. Uh, Blair Witch Project, one of the best, uh, most profitable movies of all time. But the other thing that I want to mention... up, too, is definitely sidestepping the question of whether or not it was real. So this is why I wanted to bring that up, though. Because this write-up does not indulge in any of the... uh, this could be real thing. And I Mm remember there's, there has been a um, sort of, I don't know, like there's been a, a, a sense of this movie through the years that they, the movie was trying to trick people that the movie was that essentially being like, Oh, I was scared by that movie, but that's because I thought I was real because we were supposed to think it was real. That's what they told us. And, and there was no way for me to know that that wasn't real because we were all lied to. And I, my thing is, that's fucking bullshit. Like, yeah. if you only, like, the trailers were te- were selling you, you know, a version of it that was real. But, like, that's an advertisement. None of the press was indulging in that. Like, all the press around this was very upfront about the fact that, like, this is a movie with actors and directors and whatnot. And I remember before I saw it, I saw an interview on MTV with the three stars. Yeah. It, I mean, maybe I saw it. Maybe I saw it a week after it opened or something, but I saw that I went into the movie knowing it wasn't real because I remember them asking them, "What? How does it feel to you know see the success of this movie, but people think that you're dead?" And I remember Heather Donahue's answer was "Cha-ching." <laughs> my my whole thing of it is just like more than almost any other movie, there's so much posturing from people about the Blair Witch Project. And that was true then. And that is still weirdly true now. And it just, it annoys me. And I will, I will snap back at it at any moment. No, I absolutely, I I agree because I do think it's actually a very effective movie. And, uh, you know, there's a whole genre that, uh, has, Blair Witch wasn't the first movie to do this type of found footage thing, but it did really explode it and legitimize it. But yeah, when you watch that movie now, and maybe it's partly because it's 20 years out from it, it's fully irrelevant if it's real or not, that it's fake, that the movie is as effective and scary as it yeah. is. Um, there's, a, there's also the certain crowd that's like, it has nothing to do with whether or not it's real, but people who want to just like really affirm to you that it is not a scary yep. movie. That's the other and thing, yes. They, that is a posturing that I find yep. very annoying as that's, well, because yes. it's like, you know. That's whatever. what I mean. It's posturing on lots of levels with that movie. All right. Uh, let's There's jump in. also a level of Blair Witch that, like, the scariness of it is somewhat of a vibes movie. It's like, if you don't lock into what that movie's doing, you're not going to find it scary. That's the thing, is that if you were not scared by that movie, I believe you, I, 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 I am forced to take you at your word and you're, that you're not lying, but, like, I also feel bad for you. Movie. I also feel bad for you, because, like, <laughs> I was, and it was one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. Anyway, jumping ahead to August, the two splash page movies are Mystery Men and The Muse, which are, like, Give you give somebody a list and tell them to write down 1999 movies. People who are like really into movies and like these movies will not be in the top 50 of movies that you think of when you think of 1999. <laughs> um, and like no shade, like there was I liked some things about the Muse and like Mystery Man I haven't seen since 
you know, uh, it came out. But um, Mystery Men is a weird artifact because if Mystery Men came out today, it would absolutely be taken for granted that a movie like that, which is supposed to be superhero subversive movie, like taking the piss out of superhero movie, but it's still a superhero movie, right? Would open to a hundred million dollars, right? 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 True. Um. All right, so Killing Mrs. Tingle is called Killing Mrs. Tingle in this write-up. It would not be changed. The title would not be changed until after the events of Columbine, which as which were happening as this was on the newsstands. Right. Right. Um. Uh, so that is fairly significant. I think that ends up affecting culture in a lot of different ways. Uh, that I remember. I was still. School was still in session for then, um, but I remember watching that unfold, like in my dorm room or whatever. Um, so a few things, uh, obviously, a lot, a bunch of things changed in the culture. But yeah, one of the most tangible was uh, killing Mrs. Tingle changed to teaching Mrs. Tingle, even though the subject matter of this movie, like obviously, like yes, like a plot to kill a teacher is, but like so many of the things that got pulled from culture or got you know people were skittish about it's interesting to think of obviously one of the big ones was and the ones i talk about all the time which was the second part of the two-part buffy the vampire slayer season finale (laughs) was pulled and not aired again for weeks and like that would i mean buffy had a cult fandom at that point anyway but like it was it was pretty popular if that had happened today it wouldn't happen today because like people just wouldn't like the tv audience would be too demanding of it but just people would absolutely freak out to be left on a cliff like that for weeks and weeks and weeks and like it was pretty much indefinite they're like we'll air it at some point <laughs> and ultimately that was a episode about a you know uh, a giant monster attack at a high school graduation so like violence at a high school anything with violence at a high school is absolutely verboten mm-hmm. um but it was also a giant snake. You know what I mean? So it's like, <laughs> it's not realistic. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, how much are you going to, like, apply this to real life? Anyway. Okay. Um, it's also interesting because a lot of the things that took the heat, it, it's it's some of that because it's like, it, like you mentioned, it's silly. Things like Fight Club taking heat for it that really don't the matrix took heat for it but then something like teaching mrs tingle which still doesn't even have you know drop dead gorgeous level of cultum because it got so tainted when right. it's really this innocuous movie yes very much so like I it's not hardcore it maybe would have had violent. a more fair critical assessment of it because that movie got reviled when it was ultimately released and i do think that that was unfair yeah but all right one of the other things as we sort of move out of the summer preview but i want to talk about this sort of the legend of 99 and again it's the bigger films but also it is just the fact that this is this that's why we have our friends at the podcast like it's 1999 that's why you can have a podcast like that because there are like dozens and dozens into the hundreds of movies that were released this year that are memorable in some way or another. So uh, these are all movies that were relegated to the also or plus sections in this just the summer of 1999. Broke Down Palace, Run Lola Run, 
Edge of Seventeen, which was another gay uh, rom-com that I really loved, speaking of uh, that genre. Uh, Speaking of amusement parks. Yes, also, yes. Um, uh, Dick, which gets a photo in this um, write-up, which, again, forever, the only thing I knew about that movie was that photo of Michelle Williams and Kirsten Dunst in their, like, American flag uh, outfits that they made for the end of that movie. Um, Drop Dead Gorgeous, speaking of Kirsten Dunst, Lake Placid, Princess Mononoke, The Iron Giant, Detroit Rock City, 50 Violins, which was what movies, Music of the Heart was called back then, um, <laughs> Fight Club, as we talked about, The Adventures of Sebastian Cole, um, that movie Next to You, that I believe is what Drive Me Crazy was originally supposed yes. to be titled, um, that gets retitled because the Britney Spears phenomenon, uh, you know, grows and grows uh the wood there's this movie called the velocity of gary that like i included in this because i had never seen it and the velocity of gary is when our listener the listeners that immediately listen to our episodes when they drop they they reach for their podcast app with the velocity of gary that's right so apparently this was a um this was a movie directed by Dan Ireland, and it starred Vincent D'Onofrio and Salma Hayek and Thomas Jane. And the logline of it, which is what sort of made me want to include it, that in our uh, thing was ex- ex-porn star Valentino and Gary are in love with each other, but Valentino also has a girlfriend. Tragedy hits them when Valentino collapses and is hospitalized with AIDS. So this is like a like bisexual love triangle indie movie from 1999 that like that now never heard of i kind of want to see it i nobody talks Instead about of it we love you gary it's we fuck you gary yeah kind of um but just like bisexual rom-com where like the central gay couple is vincent d'onofrio and thomas jane is like i will raise an eyebrow to that that's kind of really interesting Fascinating. um but nobody ever talks about it so i can't imagine it's like all that good or else like somebody would be holding a torch for it so um, I don't know. I'm interested. I'm interested in that movie. If anybody, uh, any of our listeners uh, want to uh, tweet at us about it, please do. All right. Um, one last thing about the back of this book, which is um, the reviews section. First of all, there are like three separate articles about Party of Five, which at this point is like ending its fifth season. Like this is not a new show. This is not a show that is en- that is uh, going away. It is in the m- late middle of its run. And Ken Tucker just sort of decided to watch it that week and reviewed it. And then there's a sidebar about Olivia Dabo's character, who was in, like, had, like, a girl-on-girl kiss with Neff Campbell's character. And, I don't know, we talked a little bit about Party of Five uh, in our uh, Ransom episode, so, like, we don't have to get into it. But, like, I was just very struck by the fact that, like, there's a lot of Party of Five in this issue. Um, Pushing Tin is the big movie release of that week, and they talk about it. Uh, this was in the middle of the Angelina Jolie ascendance to fame. This was, she had already done Gia on HBO. She had also won, I believe an Emmy for the TV movie, George Wallace. Um, I think it's a globe. Yeah. Okay. She won back to back globes. That's what it was. Back to back globes for, right. Cause Mayor Winningham, I believe won the Emmy for George Wallace. Um, anyway, uh, uh, George Wallace, Gia, and then Girl Interrupted would be later this year. So, like, by the by next year's time, she'll be an Oscar winner. But at this point, she's still on the rise. Her star is still on the rise. This was basically her first uh, 
big movie that's not Hackers, essentially. So, and Hackers feels like it got relegated to, and like Foxfire, I guess, that's sort of like the early Angelina Jolie career that feels like it was sort of like siloed off from mm-hmm. this stage of her career. The review is not super positive, except for about her. Like, Owen Gleiberman is really into what she's doing in this movie. Um, a movie I have seen and don't remember a ton about. Like, I Same. couldn't recount the plot for you. But, like, it's Billy Bob Thornton. Angelina Jolie, obviously that's where they like met, uh, John Cusack and Kate Blanchett. So like, really interesting cast. It's the movie that Mike Newell directed instead of directing Notting Hill. We'll get into that. Um, and then the other big review is Existence. Lisa Schwartzbaum reviews Existence, compares it unfavorably or compares it favorably to The Matrix. Is not very kind to The Matrix and and likes Existence better. I love Existence and I don't think I would go as far as being like this is the movie that puts The Matrix to shame. Um, <laughs> But also mentions like Sarah Polly. Uh, Sarah Polly is in this movie very briefly, um, but is like Sarah Polly and David Cronenberg should like spend a lifetime making movies together. And I'm like, I agree. Did they? And I don't know if they did. I don't think they did. No, which is a bummer. Because after Canadian... Existence, there's not a ton of Cronenberg movies because yeah. basically after Eastern Promises, which I suppose is fifteen, not fifteen years later, but a decade later. Mm-hmm. That's when things like Cosmopolis and Maps to the Stars happen. Canadian excellence is what I'm saying. We could have had a... Listen, when this episode drops, be days away from seeing Crimes of the Future. It's true. All right. Uh, Talk about the the grid, though, the movie review grid, and and how Lisa Schwartzbaum was so mean to The Matrix. Okay. uh, Here's the thing. In the grid, it says she gave it a C-, but then in the little mini review, it says she gave it a C+. Either way, Lisa, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, We love Lisa. We're not fans of Owen. Uh, The grid doesn't have anything super wild about it, aside from that... Apparently, Owen Gleiberman gave Go an A. We love that for him. I love that. That's you know, uh, stop comparatively. Clock, clock to can be right twice a day. Yeah, nor that's maybe the only time we say uh, we love that for Owen Gleiberman. Yeah. Um, also, an A for Election, but no other reviews except for Manola. Who gave yeah. it an A minus? Manola. Manola was at LA Weekly at the time. Gave an A minus to Election. That is taste. She also gave Go a B plus. So I'm not just hanging my hat on an Owen Gleiberman review. Um, and she gave The Matrix a B plus. So this was look okay. At the- so to be fair about Lisa giving a C minus or plus, we'll just split the average and say a C. Yeah. The grit. The critical mass performance of The Matrix isn't great. No. The cinema score is an A minus, which I guess they were doing cinema score instead of EW readers. But everybody else is solidly in the B minus to B plus range. That movie was not really canonized until a good like the stretch until from, DVD. Well, yes, but I yeah, and it was a good long a good bit of the way before the in that four year interim between the original and the sequels that that movie would be ultimately canonized. That was a... Because it was one of those movies that you got for free when you bought a DVD player. Kind of, yeah. But so like, look, every household had it. Once again, The Ode to 1999. This is your critical mass lineup. Cookie's Fortune, the Robert Altman movie. Election. Existence. Go. Um, Goodbye Lover, which is not a movie I'm super familiar with. Life, which is the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence movie. The Matrix. Never Been Kissed. Pushing Tin. Ten Things I Hate About You. Like... 
That was just a snapshot of a week in 1999. Like, that's pretty great. A spring week of 1999. Exactly. Other write-ups, too, that were uh, available. Hideous Kinky, the uh, uh, um, Kate Winslet movie. Uh, Analyze This. What else? Open Your Eyes, which was the Spanish-language predecessor to Vanilla Sky. SLC Punk, the... um, um, which call it Matthew Lillard movie, the out of towners with Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin. Just like what a time to be alive. 1999. What a time to be 18 years old, Chris. I'm saying. All right. Yeah. We should talk about Notting Hill, the movie that our listeners (laughs) voted for. Good God. Uh, Thank you so much for having such patience with us. I know. I hope you really like the EW stuff as much as we do. We really, really had a fantastic time going through these issues. I would like to incorporate maybe more EW stuff into movies from this era that we talk about in the future, if we can procure issues in time. Maybe Just not probably to this extent. a little more planning ahead for us. Maybe, maybe not to this extent. I wouldn't expect an hour and a half on EW uh, in most of our episodes, but we'll try and incorporate. If we can, the fact that I can find as many old issues on eBay as I can is a little bit of an eye opener for me. And um, yeah, I think with a little bit of advanced planning, we should be able to talk a little more EW on our episodes, which I'm very happy about. All right. Notting Hill, Chris. Let's just set it up. Let's just jump into your plot description. I'm going to set it up uh, for you and let me reach for my phone. Um, 1999's Notting Hill was directed by Roger Michel, a fave, the late great. We will talk about it. It was written by Richard Curtis, another fave, starring Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant, Reese Ifans, Hugh Bonneville, Gina McKee, Emma Chambers, James Dreyfus, Tim McInerney, Richard McCabe, Alec Baldwin, several other uh, cameos, which we'll get into. Chris, I'm about to put 30, er, 60 seconds. I almost said 30. I'm not going to shortchange you. <laughs> You're really that strapped for time. Yeah, we gotta go. We gotta go. All right, 60 (laughs) seconds on the clock for Notting Hill. Are you ready? I am. Go. All right, so our hero is Will Thacker. He runs a travel bookstore and has a group of friends that includes a spiky-haired sister, and he lives in a flat with a probable sex criminal. Um, (laughs) His life changed, basically, when the film star Anna Scott comes into his bookstore one day, uh, and then they have this weird interaction. He runs into her with orange juice, and she has to go to his his house to clean up, and then eventually she invites him to a uh, press junket where they kind of flirt a little bit, and then they do actually start to really flirt, and he becomes her date to his sister's birthday party. His, His sister is very creepy towards him and is an obsessed fan. Anyway, there is a uh, flirting uh, romance there, but then she's also still dating Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin shows up out of surprise and it sets them apart. But then she comes back and is filming again uh, in London and uh, they meet up again. They he she has had a sex scandal where previous nude photos have leaked and uh, there's video of it. So it looks like it's porn. They actually consummate their relationship, but then the press gets hold of it and then they are split apart again. She follows his advice to make a Henry James movie and he meets her again there on the set and she ends up uh, kind of dissing him to an asshole co-star. But then she meets up with him and says, Hey, I would actually like to be with you. I'm just a girl in front of a boy telling him to love her. And uh, he says, no. But then his friend's like, you're crazy. And then he goes to her final press conference and says that he's back from horse and hound and would like to actually be with her in guided, uh, in, in like a guarded way. And then it's really cute. And she's saying she'll indefinitely stay in London. 
The end. I'm our hundred second plot description from Chris Vile. Very good. You should have cut me off. No, I. That's one to thing we will be getting back to. I do have to say, once this miniseries is over, we will be doing sixty second plot description. I I doubt it. All right, Notting Hill. <laughs> the summer of Julia. We got to talk about it. So. We've talked when in our Pelican Brief episode, we talked about these sort of the many comebacks of Julia Roberts that the press really put her through her paces. Every failure was a bottoming out, every success was a huge comeback. My best friend's wedding was only two years before this, so they had she had yet to, um, her career had not been allowed to dip yet, so she's still pretty much riding high on the return to rom coms with my best friend's wedding, and yet. I still remember 1999, they're like, but even more so she's back now because obviously Runaway Bride was seen as a return to the pretty woman thing. She's back working with Richard Gere and Gary Marshall. Um, and it's also fairly self-referential, at least in a winking way, to Julia's, um, you know, she left, essentially left Kiefer Sutherland at the altar. They broke up a couple days before their wedding. Um both and of then, these movies are very referential to Julia Roberts as an actress, as exactly. a celebrity, right? Etc. No, right. Notting Hill. Uh, most of that EW movie preview write-up was about the preoccupation with how much is the Anna Scott character meant to be Julia Roberts. I don't think it was written with Julia Roberts in mind, but how much of Julia is in this character. There's a moment where she's talking to Hugh Bonneville and he's being very clueless about, you know, who she is and what she does. And he asks her how much she made on her last movie. And she says $15 million, which was not the original figure in the script, but it's what she made for Notting Hill. So, you know, things like that are in the movie. Obviously, Julia Roberts has not had a a nude photo scandal. And, you know, she's... Her career didn't really scan onto the sort of helixness of Anna Scott's career, but there are obviously elements, frustrations with the paparazzi, frustrations with mm-hmm. the way that movie fans would talk about her, an excessive interest in her romantic life, uh, things like that, that are probably common to a lot of actresses, but certainly Julia Roberts being like the most famous actress, they were especially applicable to her in this movie. So... The thing that separates Anna Scott from Julia Roberts the most, though, is that Julia Roberts doesn't make space movies. Th- this is, I, yeah, that's what I was saying. Sort of the, it doesn't scan that like Julia Roberts's, you know, sort of off-brand movies back then were not of that sort. I was trying to think of like what sort of like big blockbustery movies like she she had blockbusters but they were all blockbusters because they were Julia Roberts movies and they were like right. Notting Hill you know what i mean or they're like Pelican Brief that they're right. blockbuster movies for adults right but she's never really done you know franchise movies she's never really done i guess like even when she gets into like ip it's like mirror mirror right which is not at all right uh you know it's so avant-garde that you would be foolish to even you know put it into that category unless there's anything i'm missing let me it's just a like, tarzan movie <laughs> i guess hook is the closest right hook is the closest to that kind of thing it's fairy tale rather than like action adventure um otherwise like even the oceans movies are not that the oceans movies are so auteury um there's really nothing Honestly, there's really, really nothing. She's. I never... mean, there's Hog Osage County, which is kind of like actress MCU. 
Right. But like speaking of, <laughs> it's true. But like speaking of that, like she's never done MCU. She's never done a Batman. Nope. She's never done a Superman. She's never done X-Men. She's never done superhero stuff. She hasn't had to. You know what I mean? I mean, Hook was so early for her and it did not go well for her. So it might have put her off on that type of, yeah, you know, yeah, film. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so that was the, the big sort of media narrative going into the summer of 99, which was going to be, you know, the summer of Julia, two big movies. They both end up doing very well at the box office. Um, I think there was something in, oh, and now I want to look this up where like, uh, oh yeah. Notting Hill set the record for highest grossing opening weekend for a romantic comedy, a record that was bested a few weeks later by Runaway Bride. So, um, and that that to me also like the, there's a lot of like the Notting Hill story about like uh, people topping their own records because Four Weddings and a Funeral had been the highest grossing uh, British movie ever until Notting Hill comes along. So like um, like in Britain rather right. So there's there's a lot of success around this movie and around Julia in this movie. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she wins the Oscar the next year. Like Aaron Brockovich needed to be there. Like without an Aaron Brockovich, that doesn't happen. But like the atmosphere was right. She also wins her Oscar for Aaron Brockovich a year after it opens too. Sure. So it's really easy to kind of combine those three movies in a sense of trajectory. Yes. Well, and also, though, it's like she just spent 1999 making a lot of money for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? All like three of those movies are $100 million movies. Absolutely. So a great summer for Julia Roberts. I want to talk about Notting Hill specifically, though, before we get and then we'll get into like the, the ephemera of it and whatnot. And definitely the Hugh Grant of it. Where I don't think we've ever talked about Notting Hill as a movie together. I kind of have no idea where you stand with this movie. I like it. I like it. It is I like it. of the Richard. You know, I'm a huge Richard Curtis person. I like a lot of the more divisive Richard Curtis movies. This is not a divisive Richard Curtis movie. Most people really like this movie. It's probably my least favorite of the movies that you most think of with him. I like it less than Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, About Time, Um I like it better than The Boat That Rocked. It's not that I don't like it, The, the Boat That Rocked. I still need to see that. Um, Pirate Radio, sorry. Um, I don't not like Notting Hill, but there is, I don't, there are people who like love this movie, and I get it. I just don't feel that way toward it. The, that feeling that Richard Curtis movies tend to give me, that sort of like, sort of like, you know, bursting heart kind of thing, just like sort of delight, even when they're messy, even when they are uneven. Um Notting Hill's a cleaner movie than Love Actually. Notting Hill is sort of a more streamlined movie. I I don't... It doesn't reach the heights that Love Actually does to me. Or, like, certainly About Time, my favorite Richard Curtis movie. Hugh Grant's character isn't that interesting. It's so reliant on his star persona, which yeah. is, like, wonderful. He is so charming in this movie. Love him in this movie. But there's not much for that character on the page except for the kind of hurdles that are thrown at him by dating a movie star and he just is a bookshop owner and those hurdles to me are a little repetitive i think this movie repeats a lot of beats in terms of uh-huh. they get close but then her you know her star power gets in the way and then they get close and then her star power gets in the way you know what i mean like it's it's but as those things are repeating you are getting
unearthing more and more of who she is as a person. And she is kind of lock unlocking this vulnerability. You watch her wall slowly come down. And I guess what it is that kind of makes it repetitive is that it shoots all the way back up again yeah. whenever yeah. things fall apart. Or he perceives it to, uh-huh. like when he when he shows up on the film set, and really what he overhears is her blowing off, yeah, uh, co-star. That was not... what annoyed me the most. I was yeah. like, after all we've been through in this movie, like you're really gonna let like this misunderstanding like cause you to leave his character. I mean, all right, real talk. <laughs> I'm never gonna love a character who is so pronouncedly uh, outside of pop culture awareness. Like, I'm never going to find that charming. I know we're supposed to. And I get why an actress like Anna Scott would find it appealing that she's found a guy who doesn't know who Rita Hayworth is, I guess, who, like, is so outside (laughs) of pop culture that he doesn't get why she's a big star. And, like, you've heard this from other people where, like, I literally was just listening to Melissa and Danny from The Real World uh, on a podcast talking about how, like, their relationships are with people who never watched The Real World. And, like, they ha- that would have had to have been the case because otherwise, you know, it wouldn't have worked. And so, like, along a similar principle, I get why Anna Scott would be – this would be appealing to her. To me – First of all, you asshole – bringing up Melissa and Danny when we're trying to stay focused on the movie. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. No, no, we can't we'll talk about it another time. All right, but anyway, for me, I look at Hugh Grant and I'm just being like you're not better than me, shut up. Like, you know what I mean? Like like <laughs> that's sort of how I feel. Where it's like just cuz you live in your little bookshop bookshop and you don't pay attention to like celebrity news and whatever, like you are not a pure of heart, you know, uh, paragon of whatever. Like he passes by a newsstand on his walk to his bookshop every day. You know what I mean, though. I you don't know buy. What I, mean. it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. All right. Anyway, so I find myself a little less enraptured with their love story when I'm literally just like, she should probably just be with somebody else. <laughs> I do think that is a testament to the chemistry between the two stars, though. Sure. Because on top of the fact that those are not two people I would think of to put romantically together in a movie, that that would be interesting chemistry, they do actually have good chemistry. And I think it's because both of their performances are good in this movie. Very good. Yes, they're both very, very good. Yeah, this is an underrated Julia Roberts performance. Mm -hmm. Gotta say, that was one of my main takeaways from this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rewatching it, I mean. Um, She's doing so much with, like, vulnerability that... You know, in other parts of her career, like Aaron Brockovich being probably the big example, there's vulnerability there, but it's up against toughness. Right. And what this character is doing is allowing herself to be vulnerable when she has these really kind of tried and true, tried and true, you know, defense mechanisms because she is a person in the public Mm -hmm. um, that I don't think are necessarily all that cinematic as a character idea, but she actually makes it interesting to watch. Yeah. No, I think it's it's a very well-calibrated star turn from her and from Hugh Grant. I think it's... The parts of it where it's supposed to call upon 
you know, where the audience is supposed to be like, ah, because Julia Roberts is an actress, where she's talking about uh, the scene where they're at the dinner, right, with the friends, and she's trying to tell the sad story about how, you know, in 10 years, I won't have my looks and people will remember that I'm a terrible actress and all this sort of stuff. There is a little bit, and I guess it, in the scene, it is also like supposed to be her protesting too much. But I think we in the audience are supposed to also feel in that moment that this is her sort of, you know, real feelings coming to the surface. And I'm just like, all right, but I don't entirely buy that from Julia Roberts. You know what I mean? Like, we all <laughs> well, know that Julia Roberts is not a bad actress. Years with Julia Roberts. But, um, yeah. well, the other thing is Julia Roberts was 30 years old when she filmed this movie, which is kind of mind-blowing, and probably yes. because I saw this when I was a kid, and at that age where... You know, age is basically a construct. Anyone older is simply older. older. You can't yeah. understand the difference between 25 and 45, right. you know? Yep. So it is interesting to remember how young she is making this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but also, I think there's also a sense that, like, in a lot of these movies people just sort of behave in a way that is a little bit more mature. I think like, or maybe just like 30 year olds are less mature now than they were 20 years ago is maybe the other thing. Um, <laughs> but like 30 seems incredibly young to me now. Um, and does she say how old she is in this movie? I don't know. I don't, I don't think we get Anna Scott's age. I don't recall. Um, she is making a science fiction movie called Helix. That sounds pretty bad. Um, in her Mother's Day wig. Yes. <laughs> 100% true. Uh, with a cameoing uh, Clark Peters, who is one of her co-stars in this movie. And, um, Fabulous. The, the horse and hound scene, I think, is just, it's just a very funny scene where he shows up. He thinks he's going to meet her at her hotel. She could have communicated that better. But again, you know, it's 99. I guess not, you can't text anybody or whatever. The movie has a hard time with saying Anna might be a little bit of an asshole. Well, that's a big part of that write-up where <laughs> uh, where they're talking about how much, how unlikable, how much can they push Anna's character into being a little bit of a jerk, a little bit, a little bit unlikable without going too far. And there's this William Goldman quote talking to um either curtis or roger michelle i can't remember who about how like now you've got julia roberts and she's going to push back on this and and but you have to um make that character a little more unlikable for this movie to work you have to like risk that and julia didn't seem to be concerned necessarily with anna being unlikable as she was she requested a rewrite to make anna funnier which i imagine is where we get the whoopsie daisies scene like mm-hmm. that feels like something that was maybe thrown in for um, a little bit of extra comedy, a little bit where like Anna's, you know, a little bit more fun. Um, I was trying to sort of figure that out after I read that little part of like, I wonder what was in, like part of that rewrite to make Anna funnier. But. Cause I, otherwise Anna would just be this kind of sad sack whenever she gets to speak. Yeah, well, right. She's got all of these problems, right? She's got the the nude photos scandal, and she's making movies she doesn't really like, and she's in this relationship with the Alec Baldwin character that she clearly doesn't want to be in, and she feels very trapped by her celebrity. And, and 
so then you've got the Hugh Grant character, who I'm just going to call Hugh Grant because, like, that's who he is. Um, Hugh Grant is playing Hugh Grant. Basically. Movie. Our who, perception of Hugh Grant. Who can't understand. Her jerkiest moment is when the paparazzi shows up at the door at the morning after they're together. And she really flips out and she accuses Reese Fons of trying to sell uh, access to her. And and she's really mean to Hugh Grant. And she says that this is something I'm going to regret for the rest of my life. And But, like... I wonder how much we're also supposed to, how we're supposed to take his naivete in that. Because, like, he is also kind of monstrously naive, where he's like, the newspapers today will line the trash bins of tomorrow. And, like, what she says in response to that is actually correct, where it's just like, Mm -hmm. maybe for you, but, like, this will be remembered for me, like, a lot. And I think she kind of undersells it, because the thing that they don't talk about is the press seeing not only Hugh Grant, open the door in his underwear, but then psycho Reese Fons in his like Lucy Whiteys showing Pederast. up. Yeah. Reese like, Fons. Right. Sex like, criminal. Like the stories that must have been written about that and about this like, you know, Anna Scott in three way relationship in a, you know, London On the townhouse. heels of a like basically a sex tape scandal. Right. Right. It would have sunk her career. Like the movie really does kind of actually undersell that a little bit where this would have been a catastrophic thing for her career. Yeah. But anyway, but it's a romantic fantasy and I get it. So like, we don't want to linger on that and they want to make it surmountable. And that is true. But I do feel like we're supposed to hate her in that scene. And I kind of hate him maybe more in that scene. Yeah. I don't think the movie fully understands that his naivete, while a selling point to her is also a prop. You know, well, it it, um, it takes not a, away not a problem for the movie, but the movie doesn't realize the ways that he is an asshole in that moment. Right? He he does not have an ability to sympathize with her in that scene, and like she's being super mean to him. So like I get it, but regardless, there's a lot of scenes of this movie of him being quietly wounded by her. And that is where I feel like the repetitiveness comes in a little bit, where it's like, it happens when he meets Alec Baldwin, and it happens in that scene when she's, you know, mad at him. And it happens in the scene on the movie set where he overhears her saying that, you know, oh, it's nobody. And it's like, I maybe am at a limit of wounded puppy Hugh Grant faces in this movie. I don't know. See, I agree with you on pretty much all of these things. My biggest detriment, and again, not to be a cinema sins, my biggest uh, <laughs> issue with the movie is that the music supervisor should be in jail. Um, oh, let's talk about it. <laughs> should be fully... Uh, uh, I, I don't support the carceral system, but uh, they, they should be locked away what or was... stripped of their music supervisor's their duties indefinitely. What was the needle um, drop that did it for you? Of frame one of the film uh elvis costello's she is so upsetting uh the multiple versions of when you when you say nothing at all it's okay the music no i want to i want to i want to unpack this i want to i definitely want to unpack this because (laughs) this is also a richard curtis thing and i know he's not the director of this but it is in many ways this is more a richard curtis movie than it is a roger michelle movie Um, okay it, it is both of those things. And the Roger Michelle vibe and the Richard Curtis vibe, it's the Venn diagram is not a circle, but it's definitely not a butt either. So it's close. It is. Well, but there are ways. It is a partial solar eclipse. I lunar guess. Lunar eclipse. I'm there, not a scientist. 
there are ways in which Roger Michel's movies are a little less um, whimsical, a little less sort of so sunny. Like, I love a Roger Michel movie, but like there is, um, I don't know, there's a little more uh, emotional, not just complexity, because I don't want to shade Richard Curtis as being like not emotionally complex, but you know what I mean? Like there's, they're more uh, Hyde Park on Hudson excluded. They're more <sighs> conceivable, real people. Than sure. Sure. Richard sure. Curtis movies. But Richard Curtis movies love a very particular, there is a particular sort of middle brow British fondness for um, like R and B in a way that like very sort of like mainstream R and B that yes. feels um, true to the demographic, but also unavoidably cloying. And so I, this is when I say I want to unpack this. Do you ages like cottage cheese? Is it the Puerto Vallarta? Is it just the fact that like he's so enamored of Elvis Costello that he bookends his movie with the same Elvis Costello song, or is it like the lyrics to "She" that are too much for you? Is it too well, on the nose? I mean, it, it, it's it's just cloying is the right word because it's it's a little nails on a chalkboard to me. But like that song choice, I get it. It's just maybe the version because it does a lot of heavy lifting, especially because the protagonist of the movie doesn't know what a movie star is apparently it does a lot of heavy lifting for us to put anna scott on a certain level right yeah. of stardom of yes iconography of yes well and you get the, all of that like red carpet footage of julia roberts at various premieres and whatnot and so um i i get what you're saying i don't think i have as much of a problem with the elvis costelliness of it where it came for me was and i don't like ain't no sunshine is a fine song it's a good song it is absolutely been overused in popular culture i've watched too much american idol to not be totally burned out on ain't no sunshine and it's also that every version of these song every song that appears in this movie has so many versions of it and it's like they chose the worst version of that song to put in the movie well it's the bill withers version like it's like that's the classic sort of version of it that i don't mind so much the other thing is i I, well, yes. Um, like I said, American Idol season American one. Idol has ruined me. Uh, yes. Um, I believe it was Christina Christian in the first season of American Idol who did Ain't No Sunshine, and it was great. Anyway, um, the other th- big needle drop in this movie is Give Me Some Love in the, the Stevie Winwood Spencer Davis group. Uh, okay, that I like. <laughs> okay. I'm here for that. I'm my father's son. I can't not like a Stevie Winwood song. Like, he's sort of like, uh, he programmed it into me from a very young age, so like, I can't not. But I think it's the fact that it's not just the presence of the songs, is that like, they take up an entire act of the movie, seemingly. Like, they're so prominent for such a long stretch, and it's not just a snippet. You get like the whole song where like that entire like car race to get him to the hotel or whatever is played out in like real time in the song. The ain't no sunshine thing. Like is supposed to like this montage that like spans a whole year or whatever. And like, you really feel like it does last a year. And so like, but like that same instinct that Richard Curtis has with that. And that may well have been like a full Roger Michel decision, but like you see Curtis's fingerprints on all over that. Right. You also don't get the scene like Love Actually is dominated by All I Want for Christmas. Like Love Actually is dominated by Kelly Clarkson's The Trouble. Love Actually of Love. is a musical. <laughs> uh basically, yes. So like and I find all of that incredibly charming. There's so much of 
about time that is like those like handful of songs that like just allow to like play through an entire montage or whatever that like wreck me in that movie that like so i can't fully turn up my nose at notting hill for being so obsessed with these kind of and like about time it's more of a it's more of a specific sort of genre tweak in that but like there's a i don't know it's just like it's so very middlebrow in this movie elvis costello like i don't know an elvis costello fixation feels like i don't want to indulge in okay boomer culture and yet like it does feel a little okay boomer <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Most of the music is the difference between listening to an adult contemporary radio station and being in an elevator. <laughs> There's a noticeable difference. All right. Yes. That's my big call. But, okay, so you were talking about the Richard Curtis vibes and the things that, like, Richard Curtis does well and not well. I think my favorite Richard Curtis thing is done very well and I think is owed much of the reason why people love this movie richard curtis loves a movie about a bunch of friends oh yes oh very much so you find and it the, in the all the of his of movies friends in this is so like I, I, he never really makes a bad group of friends but like this is a good group of friends he literally made it, he did peter's friends right <laughs> let me look that up um i don't I do believe like so friend. um but let me look it up is that not richard curtis who is that it's all of the other people in England. Oh, it's Branna. Branna directed that. Yeah, Branna directed it. It was written by Rita Rudner and Martin Bergman, actually. So, yeah, I don't Why think... Why does that Curtis... feel like the urtext for Richard Curtis? Because it's got all anyway. these other people who are in Richard Curtis movies. I guess maybe mainly Emma Thompson. It should be called Richard Curtis's Friends. Um... <laughs> Richard's Friends, yes. Um... <laughs> no, I think you're, you're not wrong about that. The, this is sort of the... Uh, feels like a little bit of like the Rosetta Stone for all these other Curtis movies that does right. It's a group of friends. It was the group of friends in uh, for uh, for weddings and a funeral. There are familial relationships. Obviously, this movie has the quirky sister with the wild hair that is repeated in about time. The thing that I learned while researching this movie this time that like I've talked on this podcast a bunch of times about my theory that like Richard Curtis has a real life quirky sister who shows up in all of these other things. Uh, I did not realize that like he did have a sister who struggled with mental illness and took her own life in 2009, which he didn't go public with until 2017, which is like incredibly sad. And I feel like now, like I've been so flippant about this thing, but like, it's also a thing like it shows up in a lot of these things where like the character in Notting Hill, the sister played by uh, Emma Chambers is more quirky than like troubled but like there's like a sadness to her obviously the sister in about time is um you know has a hard time getting her life in order and in certain versions of that timeline is in a bad relationship or is in a car accident or has you know uh alcohol issues but it's not really pronounced mental illness stuff but it also made me think of the Laura Linney subplot in Love Actually, mm-hmm. where she's dealing with a a sibling who is dealing with mental health issues, and she's on a lot of phone calls about that. So it just makes all of this stuff sort of hit very differently. And obviously, it's mm-hmm. um, there's a little bit more of a sadness now to it. I used to find it very sort of quirky and funny, and it and it on the on the page and in the films, it still is, but it's obviously unavoidable. And also that Emma Chambers herself passed away a few years ago. Um, uh, 
I don't know. There was there was a little bit of a, a pall of sadness over that to me now. So, um, but like, I like that he's still writing, you know, his sister into things. Like that's still um, very charming. But yeah, there is definitely the Richard Curtis thing is this sort of this group of friends. They'll sort of like they'll take the piss out of each other, but they're always there for each other. They're very, you know, some of them are related. Some of them are related. Some of them are in relationships with each other. Um, I love Gina McKee in this movie. I genuinely love her in most things. I will almost always think of her first from her role in In the Loop. Um, and Peter Capaldi yeah. calling her <laughs> Peter Capaldi calling her woman from the Crying Game. <laughs> in that movie is very funny. Um, uh, but yeah, it definitely is a vibe that he brings into a lot of his movies, and especially the. I have a massive crush on Hugh Bonneville. Perfect male specimen. Okay, give it to us. I say that as someone who doesn't watch Downton Abbey, too. Wow, um, that's surprising. So see, this is mostly like, coming I from this and Iris? saw the first movie of Downton Abbey, and Hugh Bonneville doesn't do it for me in that movie. It's a totally different vibe. It's it's asking him to be someone who is not Hugh Bonneville, but like, presumably in a lot of his movies. Wait, so where is like, this well, coming from besides Notting Hill, then? He's so hot in Iris. I was going to say, is it Iris? That's so funny. Listen, listen, it's my kind of man. Um, Fantastic. But, okay, so the introduction of Anna to the group of friends is this kind of perfect comic trajectory. I love it. I, one and of my Hugh Bonneville gets to be the comic peak of it because it goes from they don't even notice her to begin with, and then they do, it's oh shit, and then you meet the sister who freaks out. Right. And then you meet Hugh Bonneville, who knows who she, who knows who Anna Scott is, but doesn't realize he's in the presence of Anna Scott right. until afterwards he has to be told and then looks like an idiot. It's, it's perfect comic plotting. Yes. For just a sequence of a movie. It's it, wonderful. It's probably my favorite scene in the movie, I would say. It's probably the best scene in the movie. Yeah. It's really, really well done. And again, perfectly, you know, calibrated Richard Curtis stuff. I really loved it. Um, and perfectly played by Julia Roberts, too. Yes. Like, uh, that, I think that scene, especially when she has to do the monologue of I'm going to age and no one's going to be interested in me, I do think is some of her best stuff in the movie. Yeah. All right. Let's pivot to Hugh Grant for a second, though, because I want to talk about this movie as being sort of pivotal to his career. So obviously Four Weddings and a Funeral is the thing that skyrockets him to American fame. Like America cannot get enough of this stammering, flopsy-haired, cute as a button British man with this like gorgeous smile and he's like just the most adorable man. And Four Weddings and a Funeral is becomes a big hit. It becomes a best picture nominee at the Oscars. He Wins the Golden Globe or is just nominated for the Golden Globe? I think he wins the Golden Globe. I think he does. I think he wins it. Um, uh, I should probably double check on that before I start spreading lies about uh, Hugh Grant, just willy-nilly. But uh, give me half a second. It tracks, though. It does track. Here, you look He has a Globe speech, and I can't think of what else he would have won a Globe for. Well, didn't he win very recently for... um, uh, like a very British scandal. Hold on. Uh, 
but he had a young a younger globe speech i thought i could be wrong no i think you're not wrong okay so let's see wins the golden globe uh for four weddings and a funeral is nominated very recently for both the undoing and a very english scandal uh does not win those does he win the emmy for those does he win something what's going on here doesn't win an emmy no, but he's nominated for the Emmy for both of those. Anyway, 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 yes. So he wins the Golden Globe for uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's a huge... Um, and then the next year, he's in Sense and Sensibility, another Best Picture winner. He's in... Uh, the, nominee. The English... Sorry, Best Picture nominee. Uh, he's in The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain. He's in uh, Nine Months with Julianne Moore. And so while in the United States to promote... As Nine Months nine is opening. Months, right. Uh, Hugh Grant... Uh, somewhere in the city of angels, uh, there were some angels in that city tonight. That night, um, proposition sex worker Divine Brown for some sex act Activity. and gets caught by the vice cops. Uh, clearly, keeping our streets safe from you know blowjobs and whatnot, um, gets arrested. Uh, fully like mugshot plastered all over media this like shocking thing this you know could not have picked a more incongruous celebrity to be caught uh with there's obviously a good bit of racism to the reaction to that Mm -hmm. because divine brown uh was a black woman and um this the american press sort of flips out i have no sense of what the british press did but i (laughs) the british press knowing them probably reacted uh somewhat similarly um but He's sort of, he's not necessarily a pariah, but he is like the butt of a bajillion jokes. He was dating Elizabeth Hurley at the time. Um, so there was this, all of this, again, kind of racist thing of just like, you got Elizabeth Hurley at home. What are you doing? You know, you know, right. l- looking around LA for this woman and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, goes on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, who at that point had been getting beaten in the ratings by Letterman who had just moved over to CBS. And this was the episode that changed the ratings uh, trajectory of that battle that uh, Leno having Hugh Grant on uh, gooses that show's ratings. He very famously uh, leads off his questioning with what the hell were you thinking? And everybody sort of like claps and applauds. And in a moment that I find very like, I find it very kind of gross that Jay Leno like went out to lunch on Hugh Grant's scandal. Um, But Grant also plays it off kind of perfectly. He is abashed and apologetic and self-deprecating, but not trying to like make too much light of it. He's sort of, he's going to, you know, take his punishment from the American public. And as a result, he doesn't really have this huge long exile. He doesn't make, he only makes one movie uh, that gets released in between 95 and 99. It's extreme measures. The movie with uh, Gene Hackman. I never saw that movie. Did you ever see that one? The medical thriller? I did not. Very Um, off brand for him. (laughs) But so 1999, it's only been, you know, less than four whole years since the divine Brown scandal. And he is back in major movies he's in the same year he's in mickey blue eyes which was we talked about this right gene Triplehorn, gene uh james Uh con um and then notting hill and so notting hill now it's like hugh grant's back baby two years later it's bridget jones's diary and it's like career back on track and but this movie's success and his great performance in this movie i think was necessary to get that career back on track 
Oh, 1,000%. I mean, nothing can uh, rewrite someone's career in Hollywood like a movie that makes money. Um, But it's also, it's his good friend Richard Curtis, who had, you know, who had written Four Weddings and a Funeral. This was a, you know, kind of like... A trustworthy formula. Right, exactly. And, And Curtis, you know, would not have... Basically, one of the things about this movie, there was a little bit that I saw in the IMDb trivia where it was like Nicole Kidman was considered for this movie. But everything you hear about this, they were like, we had our two stars that we wanted and we got them. We wanted to make this movie with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. And and that's what happened. And it was from a very early stage, these two actors. And like, you really can't envision this movie without Hugh Grant in this role. It is the Hugh Grant role. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, uh, you know, flopsy-haired book, little bookstore owner. I should mention, I mentioned the real world uh, briefly uh, earlier. This was the neighborhood that the real world London was set in. So, like, I already <laughs> was familiar with Notting Hill only because I remember that they said that that was the neighborhood that uh, the real world London had filmed in several years before this. So, it all comes back around, doesn't it? Congratulations to that work visa. Um <laughs> No, this is kind of the prototypical Hugh Grant role. His his screen persona has changed, even post Bridget Jones, where he got to play the CAD version of yes. this character, and now he's you know more comfortable playing a villain, or we're more comfortable seeing him play a villain. But um, I don't know. For me, it was because he did have that break where he was the butt of the joke for a while. And then this movie happened, which again, you make a movie that makes money. And especially at this time, also all sins are forgiven. Right. But it really made me think about in the way that 99 was kind of a before and after for movies. It was also a before and after for his career as well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Where, you know, people not stopped talking about that situation, but it's it stopped being the first thing that was said about Hugh Grant. He also was an actor who was pretty careful about the projects that he would choose. He didn't really work still is a ton. He's very, very uh, choosy in a way that I think has very much, behooved him in his career where you look at his filmography and i want to go to imdb because sometimes wikipedia prunes a little bit but like even like you look at okay so after notting hill um i don't remember he's in small time crooks i believe it but like i mostly remember elaine may and tracy allman from small time crooks the woody on movie bridget jones's diary in 01. In 02, the phenomenal one-two punch of two weeks notice, which makes, you know, a good bit of money, him and Sandra Bullock, and then About a Boy, which he's phenomenal in, should have Excellent. been an Oscar nominee. Um, really, really fantastic. One of the great Hugh Grant performances. 2003, he's in Love Actually. He's great. He dances around. He's so charming. He's the British Prime Minister everybody would have wanted. Would have wanted. Um, I should cut that Oprah thing where she's talking about Gail King, but have it be about Hugh Grant. He's the PM. Everybody would want. He is the want. dancer. Everyone deserves. <laughs> exactly. He's the Prime Minister. Everyone would want. I don't know he is the romantic a better lead. actor. I don't know a better actor. All right. Um, Bridget Jones: The Edge of Reason is two thousand four. 2005, 
a movie called Housewarming that, like, I don't even know how much he's in it, but, like, we'll glance past that. American, I'm not sure what that even is. American Dreams, Dreams with a Z, uh, 2006. Music and lyrics. Is he the Ryan Seacrest of that movie? Yes, he is. Yes. Um, music and lyrics, a movie that people will go to bat for. People love that movie. Same director as Two Weeks Notice. Him and Drew Barrymore. One Again, one of those great, like, just a, you know, they don't do rom-coms like they used to anymore. People love that movie. Um did you hear about the Morgans in 09? Fine. You know, uh, uh, also the same director as Music and Lyrics and Two Weeks Notice. He loves that. Mark Lawrence. Um, he's a voice in the Pirates Band of Misfits in 2012. So, like, again, do you hear about the Morgans is 09? No feature films until 2012, and that's only a voice role. Oh, and also, though, our beloved Cloud Atlas uh, is also 2012. Um, he's in another Mark Lawrence movie in 2014 called The Rewrite. He's in my beloved uh, The Man from Uncle, which like Man from Uncle rules. Man from Uncle fucking rules. Uh, Should have probably been more of a part of the Oscar conversation in Florence Foster Jenkins. If we were, were going to have a, an Oscar conversation for Florence Foster Jenkins, he should have been more of a part of it. Um, there was some there was some bullshit as to whether or not he was lead or supporting. Agreed. Was some agreed. of the holdout. Um. People loved him in Paddington 2 in 2017. My dad will not stop telling me I need to watch The Gentleman, the Guy Ritchie movie, The Gentleman. Every time I come home, have you seen The Gentleman? <laughs> I have not yet. Uh, I probably will at some point. He loves that movie. Um, another Guy Ritchie movie uh, this year, Operation Fortune. Has that come out? Uh, I have no idea what that is. 2022 Maybe movie. Maybe my brain has muted. Starring Jason Statham. And it's called Operation Fortune. Um, I genuinely don't know. Interesting. Very interesting. Alright, anyway. Um, no, it has not come out yet. It is set to be released later this year. Uh, IMDb could be more precise about that, but they are not. Alright, so anyway. Yeah, really, really choosy except for when it comes to Mark Lawrence movies, I guess. But otherwise, very choosy and to his benefit. Again, we talked about those Emmy nominations where he's been working more in television. Uh, I would say... Did you watch The Undoing? I actually never watched The Undoing. People were very kind of bitchy about the way that show ended, which I thought was annoying because it wasn't a big enough twist. It was the person you kind of initially thought who it was, which, like... Give me a twist that make give me an ending that makes sense over a twist that is kind of nonsensical. Anyway, I thought he was by far the best performance in that miniseries. So I thought he was fantastic. Also, my thing about the undoing was I never watched it because when it first started, everybody hated it, and then people started to like it, and then they hated the ending. So yeah, it's kind of junky, but I was I was happier with it than most people. I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I'm looking at his TV credits. The one thing I want to shout out, he's in an episode of The Nanny in 1996 that's called The Rosie Show. If this was The Nanny crossing over with The Rosie O'Donnell Show, I uh, would love to see it. He plays himself <laughs> in that episode. I, When everybody was, was watching The Nanny in uh, quarantine, I uh -huh. wasn't, not for any kind of uh, anti-nanny reasons. I just was watching other things. Um, I've seen a good chunk of The Nanny, but I don't remember him being there. All right, Gary's, if you remember the episode of The Nanny where Hugh Grant played himself, 
in the episode called The Rosie Show. Uh, get at us on Twitter, please, and thank you. Um, yeah, Hugh Grant, great career. Love him. Anything else we want to mention about Notting Hill? I do kind of want to mention the I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy. Yes, the most famous to love her. Yes. Is like the, I call everything the urtext, but it really is the urtext of Grey's Anatomy monologues. Oh, yeah. Pick me, choose me, love me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is 1000% related to pick me, choose me, love me. Yep. Nope. You're absolutely right. You're totally right. Pick me, choose me, love me, my favorite Batman forever. <laughs> I was just <laughs> lunatic um that's fantastic (laughs) (laughs) um yes the only other note that i had uh written down when i was watching this was we didn't mention misha barton showing up uh in the junket for helix um talking about she's she's at this point she's like what 13 um obviously this is before well before the oc this was the same year that she would show up puking uh uh munchausen tainted uh gruel in uh the sixth sense um but she's a child actress in this the joke here is he's like is this your first film she's like no my 22nd which is actually a really good joke um and then she that's a better joke than the working with leonardo joke which is only a setup to give hugh grant the da vinci joke to say oh he doesn't know who famous people are did we ever exist in a time where we referred to him as Leonardo? I suppose it, what was the Bare Naked Ladies song calls him Leonardo? But I always felt like we called him Leo, even from Titanic days. Chris, we do a podcast together because you and I are on the exact same wavelength, because that exactly is what I was going to say. I was like, that is Were a you going to say the Bare Naked Ladies no, thing, too? But, no, not the Bare Naked Ladies part, but like all up till that point, yes. I was like, that is a joke that is reverse engineered for its punchline. It doesn't actually make any sense, because nobody that age would not have called him Leo. So... Uh, also, I mean, I even remember in the Bare Naked Ladies song when they referred to him as Leonardo being a petulant child and thinking, no one calls him Leonardo. Nobody calls him Leonardo. Nobody's ever called him Leonardo. It's been always Leo. All right. Um, yes. All right. Some of the uh, miscellaneous things about this movie, though, I wanted to talk about. Um, was nominated for Best British Film at the BAFTA Awards, which... <laughs> There's a pretty high up, that's like pretty high up the chain, even for, you know, the BAFTAs, you know, leaning British in their sensibilities. Um, I want to get to this, but I have gone so... The other nominees are Wonderland, Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher, Onegin, Onegin, One Jin. (laughs) that's me at the bar, One Jin, please. Uh, I wish it was just one. Um, Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy, and the winner, East is East. And then the other nomination, so that was for Best British Film. Uh, The other nomination it gets is for Supporting Actor, Reese Ifans, which I believe is just, that's a Gen Pop award, right? That's any movie. Um, Give me a second. He is nominated against he loses to jude law for talented mr ripley finally some awards body recognizing the fact that jude law and talented mr ripley is the deserved winner of its category because yes uh also nominated michael kane in the cider house rules wes bentley for american beauty and timothy spall for topsy-turvy the thing about american beauty and bafta is bafta even went for american beauty even more than the academy did i think they hold on 
Yeah, they nominated two of the younger actresses in supporting. They nominated both Mina Suvari and Thora Birch. Wow. Yeah, they really loved American Beauty. Yeah, they really did. I'm telling you, like, people have all... They gave Annette Bening the win. I don't think Hilary Swank was eligible that year based on when Boys Don't Cry was released in the UK. I think she got nominated the next year. Don't quote me on that, but I think she got nominated the next year. There was a string of that with BAFTA. Yes. That happened to Charlize Theron. I believe it happened to Holly Berry. Mm -hmm. Um... Yes, people, uh, but I was going to say, people really um, uh, have rewritten their reactions to American Beauty, and, like, everybody was into that movie back then, so. Um, What else? It was nominated for Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. How many? Four of them. Four performance nominations for Blockbuster Entertainment Awards in, of course, the comedy romance categories. Uh, Let's see, Hugh Grant nominated they all are nominated but none of them win so who do you think hugh grant loses to in best comedy romance actor (laughs) of 19 i have this open so i know okay it is ben affleck in forces of nature a movie that is better than people remember comedy that no one stumps for no but it's people don't remember this movie it's better than people remember it which is they don't really remember it it's him and sandra bullock it's kind of an anti-rom-com though like ultimately like I don't know. It's tough to it's root It's the movie for that pissed everyone off because they don't end up together. Richard Gere is also nominated for Runaway Bride. So, like, it's the Julia Julia's Men and then Freddie Prinze Jr. for She's All That, of course, because it's the Blockbuster Awards. Um, let's see. Comedy, romance, comedy, romance, comedy, romance. There's so many genre categories. Julia Roberts is nominated against herself in this. So she assumedly splits her own vote for between Notting Hill and Runaway Bride. Sandy Bullock is nominated for Force of Nature. They all lose to Drew Barrymore for Never Been Kissed. Uh, then we get into the supporting categories. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Uh, Reese Fons is nominated and loses to David Arquette for Never Been Kissed. Uh, also nominated Steve Zahn. They really loved Forces of Nature, man. Steve Zahn for Forces of Nature. <laughs> um, and then supporting actress in a comedy romance, Emma Chambers is nominated. She loses to Joan Cusack in Runaway Bride. So there's one where Runaway Bride finally takes a win. Uh, also nominated Maura Tierney from Say It With Me Now, Forces of Nature. Forces of Nature. They fucking loved that movie. Um... Also, I wanted to very... Oh, so we should actually talk about the Golden Globe nominations for a second, because those are the big ones. Um, was a kind of a no-brainer nomination. Sometimes it's like, oh, what's the like very successful mainstream comedy of that year? Like, we will, you know, uh, throw that some nominations. Very successful, respectable mainstream comedy. Very much so. Okay, so... Uh, da, 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 in that one... Julia Roberts is nominated alongside Julianne Moore for An Ideal Husband, Reese Witherspoon for Election, Sharon Stone for The Muse. We've talked about this one before. They all lose to Janet McTeer for Tumbleweeds. Hugh Grant uh, is nominated alongside... God, IMDb, get your shit together with the fucking... your awards pages. Nothing is in any kind of order. All right. Hugh Grant, of course, loses to Jim Carrey for Man on the Moon. That's his second straight uh, Golden Globe win. Also, is this when he shows up in the giant beard? That was at the MTV Movie Awards. He never okay. did. He never pulled that at the Globes. He actually really, really wanted to get an Oscar nomination, and so he was more or less uh, P's and Q's at the Globes. Um, did I tell you? Was that? Have we talked about me watching the Meryl Streep AFI tribute recently? 
uh, we talked about it on mic because the first person out is Jim Carrey because they had just because they had Lemony just Snicket. done uh, Lemony Snicket, yeah. and he's like he's being like fully like antic, like he's you know running around the ballroom and he runs up to the table. She is seemingly really likes him like she seems very fond of him she sort of kind of like caresses his face and is like oh thank you i remember her being effusive about him in interviews um and uh yes and but he also at some point sort of like drops the shtick and is like that really means a lot to me to work have worked with you and blah 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 he's just like he's just very nice uh made me really like him anyway other nominees that year rupert everett an ideal husband Robert De Niro analyzed this. Sean Penn for Sweet and Lowdown. He would eventually get the Oscar nomination for that. And then it's nominated for Best Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical, and it loses to Toy Story 2. And it's not the outlier among those nominees, too. What would you say? Because analyze this. Yeah, probably. Analyze this, though, also very successful. Man on the Moon is nominated. Being John Malkovich is nominated. It's 99, uh, you know, uh, all killer, no filler, mostly. So, all right, we are getting on close to two and a half hours. Let's move into the IMDb <laughs> game, Chris. Why don't we tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? All right, listeners, every episode we end the episode with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Free-for-all of hints, which we love. That's the IMDb game. All right, Chris, give or guess first. Uh, how about I give first? All right, do it. I have chosen for you the star of the major motion picture Helix, Anna Scott. No, just kidding. Um, I chose uh, part of the reason why, because it took me forever to find somebody that we hadn't already pulled before, who beat Hugh Grant at the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, none other than Mr. Benjamin Affleck. Oh, I God. I have chosen for you, Ben Affleck. All acting credits? I can't give you hints yet. No, because you can give me a hint if he's there for a directing credit that he's uh, is not acting in. Oh well, that is uh, well. Is it Argo? He, he, is it Argo? Argo. Okay. Argo is on there. Yeah. He, it is listed as producer, even though yeah. he is the yeah. headliner of the movie. Okay. All right. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Correct. Goodwill Hunting. Armageddon. Incorrect. No. Sobbing, I love you. You know who want who does want to miss a thing? <laughs> IMDb. Um, Justice League. Incorrect. No Justice League. So you're going to get your years. Your years are 2010 and 2014. Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Very good, IMDb. Well done. His best 20, performance. 2010. 2010. The Town. Le Town. Boo. Dumb. Stupid. <laughs> idiot. Alright. Um, that wasn't so bad. I was, I was like, there's so many Ben Affleck movies, I'm never gonna get it. Right. <laughs> See, it, he, he was the first one that I got to, and you were worried about time. I was like, one of these IMDb's is gonna go fast, don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> Alright, for you, I chose the star of the other Julia Roberts movie this summer. I have chosen Richard Gere. Okay, Pretty Woman. Yep. American Gigolo. Nope. Ah, Chicago. Yep. 
Runaway Bride, I guess, because it made yep. a lot of money. Yep. Okay. Um, Got three. Three or four with one strike. Oh, fuck. Um, I feel like it's got to be... It's got to be another romantic comedy, right? What would it be? Oh, no, 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 no. It's got to be Unfaithful. Unfaith- because a lot of people are watching it right now. I would have guessed that, but that is not correct. That is your second strike. Your year is 1997. Ooh, so the dog days. Um, 97, which canonically is the year of Titanic, which usually helps me get these things. <laughs> that's not Primal Fear. Primal Fear is like 95, 96, because that's Edward Norton's first nomination. Yep. Before Runaway Bride, is it... Red Corner? No, that's the other movie he made in 1997. Oh, I got the year right at least. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's not First Night. Maybe it should be. Because that's earlier. Yes, that's 95. The First Night. <laughs> um, See, you got your Connery impression in anyway. <laughs> Richard Gere. Um, oh, it's The Jackal. It is the Jackal. Speaking of a movie that asks question, what if there was a Jackal? Uh, Richard Gere playing an Irish uh, terrorist who has to help track sure. down a, a serial killer in uh, in the Jackal, a serial killer Richard played by Richard Gere as an Irish serial killer. <laughs> You're the Jackal now, dog. Um, all right. <laughs> when you said the dog days, I was like, oh, he's so close, the Jackal. All right. Um, all right, good job, Chris. Thank Let's you. get out of here before uh, the witching hour tolls. Thank you, our listeners, for uh, putting up with these uh, extra long uh, podcast lengths. I know not everybody loves a super long podcast, so um, in uh, future we thank maybe you. in May mini series, maybe we'll do more experimentation. If not uh, as long witted as I really enjoyed this mini series, Chris. I'm really glad we did it. I loved delving into the history of EW. It was a lot of good time capsule stuff. So. Um, spending so much time with the Entertainment Weekly font has been like <laughs> a childhood blanket. No my joke. favorite, my favorite miniseries we've done of all of the miniseries that I we've agree. done so far. I this agree. is my favorite. All right, that is our episode. If you want more, this had Oscar buzz. You can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, I believe I know the answer to this, but where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. You can find me uh, enthusing about the horses and the hounds on Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so whoopsie-daisies, write us a nice review. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. <laughs>